small town music. This is big town music. He's ahead of his time, you know, but he can't use it. If only he could prove it. Well, tomorrow's just a song away, a song away, a song away. Hey, everybody, welcome to Rock Solid, the comedy podcast for all things music, both new and classic. I'm Pat Francis, and joining me today, live and in person, vaxxed and hopefully boosted, please welcome our friend, David Wilde. Hello, David. I don't know how you got me. This is a, quite a booking that you pulled off. Well, I didn't know that you would be here in person, because last night I said, uh, here's my address, and you're like, in person? And I was like, yes. Well, yeah, I'm doing a podcast now, and we do it in person because it's about having lunch together. Right. But it seems like very few podcasts, still everyone's Zooming and... Booming. Yeah, I'm a. Uh, I mean, I, I still enjoy Zoom, and I know it's more convenient to interview the musicians from their homes. But if I can get friends in here live and in person, it's it's just better. I never knew I was a friend. I finally got upgraded. I've been <laughs> desperately on the waiting list for years. Um. So you you brought up your podcast, so let's talk about it. Naked, oh, I would never bring up my podcast. Naked That's, lunch. It's a. It is called Naked Lunch. Which what's so funny is. You know, people have written about it and, uh, what is it, like, I think, like a f big British newspaper saying the William Burroughs reference, you know, and I'm like, I wish I were that smart. It's really, my knowledge of Naked Lunch came from the fact that I was a Steely Dan fan growing up and yeah. still, sadly, I've had no emotional growth, so still a big <laughs> Steely Dan fan. And that was always what I knew, which is, I, I believe I might have read the monarch notes of, uh, the cliff notes of Naked Lunch, but I did know that Steely Dan got their name from a sexual device in in William Burroughs' Naked Lunch. That's the origin of my knowledge of the phrase Naked Lunch, but it's really not, it's not named after either one of those. It's really just about the fact that, you know, Phil and I, Phil Rosenthal, who, by the way, you can, if uh, Pilar's episode, I was... Uh, Last weekend, mm -hmm. from and I hope you put this on soon so it's timely, but last weekend I was in Austin having spent like 48 hours with Phil because we were appeared at the Austin Television Festival. Yes. We did a podcast with my old friend who I hadn't seen in years, Lyle Lovett. So we were in Texas. Amazing. Well, you know, which was great. So we'd been together and we flew together. I, you would think I would be sick of him, but I got back to the hotel room and I listened <laughs> to Pilar's interview with him, which... I don't know how she got it. Oh, yeah, that's right, me. But uh, the episode was fantastic, and I frankly felt there was some sexual chemistry between them. It was odd. Yeah, yes. it was a little uh, disconcerting. Yes. But, uh, no, and, th and thank you again. David did uh, absolutely 100% help set up uh, Phil and Pilar on a date is what I'm going to say. When she leaves me, it's your fault. Exactly. She did it. She was, she's a great interviewer. Oh, thank you. Well, she's, I mean, she's been doing this longer than me. She's on episode like 770 something. It's yeah, crazy. She hasn't asked me. Um, I'm joking. I'm not a screenwriter. She has wanted to have you on, though. She has asked me, uh, and then we you just haven't done it yet. You'd have to go through Fran. And very <laughs> she, she has definitely wanted to have you on. By the time this airs, uh, what's funny is I, I've not, I mean, you've been in this position for years. I'm going to give you an air date because I do know it because I have a crazy schedule. You are going, this will drop uh, July 7th, so in about three weeks. Okay, too late. Uh, <laughs> but in any case, uh, like we're in the position of we pre-recorded, you know, for like a month to get ahead. Yeah. And then we had to take a break because Phil's traveling and I'm traveling. More him traveling, let's be honest. Yeah. I don't have the syndication money to travel the way he does. You travel quite a bit. I, I do okay. Twitter. I do okay. But in any case, I uh, have to put the episodes in order. And it's crazy because, you know, there's 
the commercial factors that you sort of want to get some good ones up front and some big right. names and also be diverse, have different, you know, have musicians, have mm-hmm. comedians, show the range, like, and like, and then figure things out. Like, so wow. you're, you're not necessarily, you're not dropping them in record order. You're dropping them in the order that feels, you're, it's like sequencing an album. It's a hundred percent. And we're like, I, I'm really enjoying that part of it, but it's really a discussion that Phil and I have had back and forth. For instance, like, uh, yeah, so like the song the we'll hear at the end of this episode. Yes, I have finally have a theme song. I've been around music and TV for all these years, and I finally coerced Brad Paisley, who's a great friend of mine, uh, who I had previously booked to play my funeral. Uh, but then I said, you can you can lose that gig. You don't have to come to my funeral if you write my theme song, our theme song for Phil and I. But in any case, like so, the like the first episodes ended up being Brad. Uh, Paisley, and then Brad Garrett and Ray Romano, because mm-hmm. uh, that's Phil's background, and, right. and Ray is a friend of mine as well. Brad, I sort of know very little, and that was the episode is wild because you sort of get to realize how how much of a Don Rickles for our times Brad Garrett is. He's fantastic. I've always loved him. Really fun. And by the way, whenever those commercials are now, it's like I have made a life's practice of not watching commercials, mm-hmm. but whatever commercial he's doing now, Jimmy John's or some sandwich thing, they're <laughs> funny as hell. Yeah. He's just funny. Why aren't all commercials funny? That's the you only thing. That's the only thing that keeps me watching a commercial is if it's funny. Well, that's what, you know, I, in addition to writing TV, which is mainly in the time you've known me, mm-hmm. you know, I do that. I also write for some corporate kind of big high pressure events and th- a, th- a very famous uh, industrial superstar once told me, he goes, David, I pay you a lot of money because every chuckle makes people refresh from their boredom. So like when they're at some sort it's of true. speech or corporate event, yeah. if people smile, they, I th- he, what he said to me is people go through life or s- listen to a speech and they go, I'm bored, I'm bored, I'm bored. And then I laughed, I'm not bored right now. And right. then I'm bored, I'm bored. I'm, <laughs> and so every laugh is important. That's why even like, you know, you, you, you blend music and comedy Maybe not as much comedy. No, I'm joking. Uh, well, when I interview when I interview these musicians, I, it's not that much comedy because I don't know what their sense of humor is or what they're willing to allow me to say. But well, it's, but when it's people in the room like this, yes, yeah. But it's funny. Like with, with me, we're finding that blend because there's like we have comedy friends, we have music friends. Now, some of the music episodes so far have been really funny, uh, others less so, and so it's always finding that interesting blend the thing i was saying and we can we'll get to our song my song soon but the thing that's fascinating is what do you try to like and this is an open question in which no one listening can answer but you can answer i partly like what phil has said to me he goes like when you make these podcasts you think you know people will sort of pressure you it's about the guest it's about who you get Mm -hmm. as a guest but like what he says which is so smart is unless they like us and get to know us what the hell is the point of, you know, because like they might like this person, they might not like this person, but they have to know us. And so it's this fascinating debate because one, like, and you know, like right now, I'll do, like I think next week uh, from when I'm saying this, like Cheryl Crow will be out. And, Amazing. And she's an old, she's one of the first people I met when I moved to LA. There's a lot of history and that's great. But then Phil will call me and, and another person coming up, maybe around the time uh, you're hearing this, Elaine May, who is a legendary figure. How old is Elaine May? Elaine right May now? turned ninety the two days after we did the podcast, and the first 
question she had. She we asked a lot of questions, and the first question she goes, "What's a podcast?" And it was you know, funny. Half of it was like jokes about what's a podcast. Yeah. She was so quick, so funny. That's amazing. And like, there's one point where there's two episodes coming up where I am put on the spot in a way that I find <laughs> hilarious as a married man because usually I have to marry someone for them to give me that much shit. But it was so. She literally forces me to tell a joke. And like, here she is. And she, oh, I don't said want to her, tell a joke in front of Elaine May. Elaine May is, <laughs> Elaine, Heartbreak Kid, the movie Heartbreak Kid is the first time I think I learned to love comedy. Like I think, and it, it, it defined, because it's sort of, I, I feel like Nichols and Elaine May, but weirdly more for me, Elaine May's Heartbreak Kid. That's the moment where I remember I, thinking, that's my sensibility because it's a movie of discomfort. It's a, it is. It's a comedy of discomfort. And that's, you know, I grew up in a weird circumstance of a crazy divorce. And I like that comedy of yeah, like and how that, weird and, shit and gets. Charles Grodin is, is a master of doing that type of comedy. He's, I've read, they're over there. I've read every single Charles Grodin book. I love, love, loved him so much. Oh, uh, it would be so, the great book is, it would be so lovely if you weren't here. here. Yeah. <laughs> what a great so book nice that if is. if you weren't here. Uh, what's amazing is, uh, we won't detour completely into Elaine May, but like this, Elaine is friends with Phil. They've just in the, like, I think in the last like, five ten years become very close and she stays here when she so she's at phil's house so she we, stays at phil's house. yes oh no and there was and amazing Jeannie berlin who's co-stars in heartbreak kid comes with her and we he screened heartbreak kid with the two of them i'm like three rows in front of them with fran and it was wild and like thank god i think elaine misplaced her wallet or purse or something, and I helped find it. So she liked me. So when you hear the episode, she mainly is nice to me. And then twice, like only your spouse can, she gave me some funny, she gave me shit, which some was shit. just so funny. I will say, like, we're right now, and this is what I was, when it began this, this long story, what it is is that we're trying to figure out, do we do our episode with Elaine May next or do we do our episode with our wives because what Phil said mm. like we we after doing all these sort of celebrities we decided because Phil's wife Monica was on Everybody Loves Raymond yes and is, she's is, Amy is, is, she's Amy and wildly she, and I didn't know that she was Phil's wife for uh, for a long time I mean I we watch Raymond every week and I, I had no idea that that was his wife she's still in denial about being married to Phil. no <laughs> but in any case so he we said let's have our wives on my kids are stunned that Fran agreed to this. Like, like this, this is, is not a, her thing. Of, she has tweeted three times, and their happy anniversary <laughs> to me. Mm -hmm. That's it. So, like, she doesn't overshare. She doesn't share. She's so professionally. She doesn't talk about what she does. Yeah, she is so private, and she kills on this episode. So she was loose on the mic. No. She just was so funny. Was there wine? Was there any naked wine? There was ice cream. Okay. Uh, this was like, we were having, we could only meet at three o'clock. So it was a very special sweets for our sweets, you know, uh, naked lunch. And the only people we've been naked with in the entire series so far. <laughs> but she literally, she, like the fun, it just was just, she was hysterical. Like, That's it's amazing. funny how, you know, I, there's some certain ways that you can only, there's certain laughs you only can have with someone you're married to for yeah. decades. And like, she, but the thing is, Phil calls goes, this is so funny. They are so funny. And in particular, I am just made fun of by both Elaine May and Fran. So I would put that one up first then maybe. Well, that's what Phil was like. I think we almost put wives first yeah. because it's, if you want to know who we are and what a mess I am, because I won't reveal what it is, but Fran 
destroys me. She I believe, out some of your uh, eccentricities? Sh- my deep character flaws. She just <laughs> went for it. Uh, it's just great. Um, wh- what was I going to add to this? Nothing. No. Um, so you brought up, I just want to interject this. You brought up Pilar and you brought up Brad Garrett and you brought up Brad Paisley. And Pilar reminded me of this today. Now, uh, my wife about uh, 20 years ago, she was on um, Hollywood Squares. I didn't know that. Yes, she was on Hollywood Squares. It was a special Survivor Island week. So if you won, you didn't you didn't continue, which was a bummer because Pilar won. She won eighteen thousand five hundred dollars, and you got to you got to pick who came out of the squares to help you out, and she picked Brad Garrett, which makes it very difficult for the cameramen because they they have to pull out so I'm wide. Cough. Should I go to the other room? You can cough. <coughs> okay, sorry. Um which makes it very difficult for the cameraman because to get Pilar and Brad in the shot, they have to pull way out. That is one of the, so far we've had Alice yeah. and Jenny and Brad and I'm like, how are we getting a photo yeah. together? Yeah, exactly. Now, to add to this, Brad Paisley was also in one of the squares that day. So how weird is that? Here's how crazy that is. Do you know that's how Brad met his wife was- On Hollywood he, Squares? He had, well, you don't know, read the book Diary of a Player written by Brad with me uh, which tells the whole story, but basically he took a he took Hollywood Squares to get out her here to meet his wife Kim. That's amazing. So he basically was like sort of had a DJ friend here um, who knew Kim, and he basically I think asked her out to meet him, and that's sort of why he did that Hollywood Squares. I've said amazing now seventy two times in about four minutes. Well, doing a podcast, you've probably learned this. You've learned what words you say constantly. Yeah, I not just me. The word literally, something about the world in the air these days, we have like, uh, we could do, we've only done 13 episodes. Mm-hmm. We could do an hour special of people saying literally. And I have made a joke, not that I make jokes much, I've made a reference to. Or ever. Yeah, really. I've made it, but I've made 400 references to Fiddler on a Roof, which I don't know why. Now, this episode, David, is will be number 649. When you're at just episode 13, it doesn't even seem possible that you'll get to 649. I mean, those kind of numbers, it just, like, I can't even believe it when I read that number. I'm like, really? I've done this 649 times? It's, it's insane. Um, now, you guys are not recording at a single location. Like, it's not always at Phil's backyard or it's not always at a singular restaurant. You guys, it looks like you guys have been doing them. All, like the Jimmy Jam one looks like you were on a TV studio. What it is, we we've done I think half maybe at Stitcher's studios. Okay, we've done that was one Jimmy had, uh, and we were offered to do all of them if we wanted at the Sirius, but Sirius owns Stitcher. There's and where's that located? That's in 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 sort of Hollywood. Okay, uh, and it was, the, but we walked in and it was like a TV set. Yeah, they had like all this signage. And I think we'll go back there. It was phenomenal. Great audio, wonderfully welcoming. The weird thing was they didn't have a table that we could like have lunch at. So we were like on a series of chairs trying to have lunch. And we're not bullshitting. We're having lunch. You're like having lunch. Like that's the – and so it's like uh, I think that was the episode. Some The producer was away. I was had to order on Postmates and get the salads delivered. And you're holding – standing on like a high chair holding a salad. It just – that was a little weird. So I think we could get a table and do it there. But we've done a, a, about, I think, a third of them at Phil's mm-hmm. house, both outside, Elaine May, 
and you hear in, and the wives are both outside yeah. and you hear some lawnmowers and you hear references to that. And That's cool. Please I like that. I like you that. like the reality. I do like the reality. Uh, for example, we have the air conditioner on in this room today because it's, it's like 90 some degrees yeah. in Woodland Hill. So if you hear that little hum, that's what it is. I'm also, I'm humming. Now, do you have, um, you guys have like a, a team, like you're not recording this, you're not editing this, Phil's not editing it. You, you have like some behind the scenes people involved, right? That are doing post-production and things for you? Yes, and but I will say, it. Uh, both Phil and I have listened to the tapes and given notes once the edits are done. Uh, but yes, we've had some help and Stitcher. It's been it's been really interesting to learn. And, and the thing is, I will say what this is sort of like. You know how you want to do something, and you forget about why you're doing it by the time you get to do yeah. it. There's a lot of that, I think, in the world of television and radio and podcast. So by the time we started, it's like, what are we? What do we? Why do we want to do this? And the thing is, we do it because. It's not a joke. Phil and I, you've gone to movie night. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. From now on, it'll just be Pilar and I at movie night. <laughs> but uh, And then maybe not me eventually. Yeah, and just hurry, uh, Phil. And when, yeah. when Phil's wife's out of town. Yes. Um, that won't happen. I'm joking. <laughs> I think. Uh, but in any case, uh, but once we did it, it's like, oh, my God, we we, we have had been having these lunches for 20 years. And it's actually been great. Like, the conversations, like, without planning like we you know we both have worked in tv where you over plan everything and where everything's on a grid and yeah. it's an order it's like brad pacey came over for the for his episode and we ended up just zeroing in without any planning talking about the old heroes you have we become your friends and end up defining your life uh and then the you know each episode has had its own theme but the connections have been like finding out like Jimmy Jam talking about working with Janet Jackson and the fact that she just sort of told her about her life and then that just, you know, that was Jimmy and Terry were just waiting to that to seep in and then writing the songs with her to make control. It's like exactly the same as Phil, you know, insisting that they get all the writers home for time for dinner so they could have stories about their Family time. families yeah. that could become episodes. Yeah. And that was, you have to have a life to write about a life. All these connections just keep coming through and it's even the episode that when when pat and i are talking just came out was roy Choi, the chef roy Choi, and it was fascinating because i didn't i'd been around him at phil's house but i didn't know him and it ended up we talked so much about because everyone loves some kind of music or whatever and it's like it ends up being tons of even though we don't have a musician in the room, it's talk about music and how the like the his food movement were like the he was like the Kurt Cobain of food trucks. <laughs> he changed the food world because after you know he sort of the Kogi uh, you know taco uh, after uh, after those became huge and food trucks exploded because of him. That all of a sudden. Like, you couldn't have a hotel restaurant that sucked. You know, all of a sudden, people, like, and all of a sudden, any kid with a couple thousand dollars, you know, or 10 kids with $3,000 could go and buy a food buy truck. A food truck, yeah. And have a restaurant, whereas before you had to have millions of dollars. Yeah. So, it's weird as all, it, it ends up being about the common ground of all, everything you try to do in the world. And we've had really, I've just loved the people. And it's also nice that, like, some of these are just reunions. Like, with Cheryl Crow, 
she was the first person I moved, like, I, one of the first people I ever had lunch with before she had her album. It's like in between when before she, Tuesday Night Music Club before the first album before the one that wasn't released. Yes, okay. in, in fact, I went, that's around the time it was because we had lunch. Uh, a publicist, you know, people always like shit talk publicists. But years ago when I moved here, I met Diana Barron, who was at A and M, and very, yeah. very important person there. And she said, "I want you to meet this singer songwriter we just signed." And that was Cheryl. That's like, I moved here in 91, and I think Cheryl and I realized it was early 92 that she said that. But we had lunch in Westwood, and then a few, whatever, months later, said, Cheryl says, I want to play you this record I just finished with you, Padgham. And I went into the studio at A&M. She played me this record, and I was like, oh, it's really nice, which it was. It's really I, good. I have, and, it, on, I have it on my iTunes. But Someone the, sent it, it to me. But then hysterically, literally, like the next day, she was like, I'm not going to put this record out. And it's that amazing. Was, to, you, you, Padgham. Yes, he was. I, you, Patrick, and Cheryl played it for me in the studio, and then it didn't happen. And yeah, I think, because I she d decided it wasn't going to happen. It was her call. Yeah, a very. They didn't talk call. too much about that in the Cheryl documentary. They didn't. I don't think they mentioned it. And no. she said, "It's interesting what ended up on the cutting room floor of that episode, which she, what she ended up being much more her emotional journey mm -hmm. than the all the music industry yeah. journey." I was bummed that they didn't, because um, they leave Bill Batrell. It sounds like. It sounds like they're that it was just over between them. But he comes back and produces two more albums later. But they didn't they didn't talk about that. Well, I, I you know when you listen to our episode, I think she's sort of I I have the sense that there is a like get back. I guess they're just putting out the DVD or the mm -hmm. you know, Blu-ray version now. I think the Blu-ray version of Cheryl. There's tons of other tons stuff. Tons of stuff. But it's like I think when you make one of these movies, you focus in on. Yeah, a it's core difficult. Story. Unless unless you're going to make it four hours like the Tom Petty documentary. But even I have to say, like Cheryl, and, and on the episode, I ask her, I'm like, I don't know what to call us, like friends or whatever. She goes, No, where she goes, we're totally friends, but because we're also people who fought the same war together and we're both still alive. Which yeah. it's so true. Like you realize that was 1992. That's 30 is that 30 years ago yeah yeah 30 for 30 years 30 we've years. been running to each other and hanging out you know whether it's at brad paisley's house because she lives near him she'll come or he'll come over she'll come over for a cup of audio tape or you know milk or whatever it is or it's at the white house we have i have a story in, about our like, oh well who doesn't have a story about running into cheryl crow at the white house uh, david i'm cursed to have these stories uh, uh, yeah i love that i did love that documentary love cheryl crow and uh yeah I can't wait to hear that one. That one didn't drop yet, did it? That's it, it'll be out by the time people hear this, and it's it'll be out next week. One more you. question about your podcast. Yes, and we'll plug it down the road in this episode too. When when you sit down with an Elaine May or a Cheryl Crow, do you have notes in front of you, or you guys are just talking, um, or do you just have bullet points in your head, things you want to ask? Um, it's interesting. We originally didn't get any material mm -hmm. any one sheet or anything like yeah. that and it was it was working out fine but there's little things where like again and we did so many episodes so quickly i i was doing my own research so i was and what's funny is the world of podcasts is now so complete that you just like put in someone's name in podcast and you go walk for a few hours you can sort of pick up a lot yeah. like doing that for alice and jenny who's one of our best episodes i like discovered there's a uh Cafe Flamingo, which is like a podcast of like, there was a podcast, I think it may have not been in the last year, but like 
there's like 25 episodes of everyone talking to everyone else and Janny ever worked with, and it was great. Wow. So you can do research that way, but we we have now asked for like uh, help, help, gotten a research a reporter who's really good to give us like a, a page or two of notes. In part because like uh, an episode that you're gonna love that might be out, I think when this is out. Susanna Hoffs, who's someone who I have known for many years, and Jay Roach, who is her husband. Yep. Uh, I we asked them, like I said to Phil, should, I want to ask Susanna. She's great, and I just worked with her on the Prince Grammy tribute, and then this re- a recent Paul Simon Grammy tribute. Right. And he goes, maybe we should do it with Jay Roach. So I texted Susanna, and, and she called me. And, and if I you said, don't know Jay, he directed the Austin Power movies and many other the, things. Too. Meet the parents. Yeah. Tons of things. So many things. Uh, and I didn't really know him, and. But Phil goes, well, I'm really interested in him. So we did that. And Susanna said, oh, my God, I'd love that. We've been married for, they've been married for 30 years. She yeah. goes, we've never done an interview together. <laughs> That's crazy. And so it's So it's, a, it's an exclusive. But like th- when we didn't have any research help or anybody doing a one sheet, mm-hmm. it's like we almost didn't notice until the conversation got going that Brad Garrett, who we talked about, is in Jay's new show, you know, with Rosanna Arquette. And it's like. Then you miss opportunities to ask certain yes. questions. So we we now uh, yeah. So, but it's interesting. For the most part, I don't look at notes. It's right. like you read things on the way there or that morning when you wake up, and then you hopefully the stuff that resonates with you you remember. The wives episode, we totally lost control of it. It was like you know, and we didn't have notes for them. Of you course, know, we have, we only have, and, and you probably didn't have notes for Brad either because you guys are real good buddies yeah interestingly like i think at one point i realized oh yeah we were in a book together i should reference that and <laughs> you know i should have reread the book uh but i didn't but you know yeah yes it so it's been educational and the biggest concern is why do i keep saying literally why do i literally keep saying literally I know you get in those uh, you get in those things, and I use um as like a placeholder. Like as I'm going to the next question, I'll be like um so yeah. and. But when I I edit those out of the interviews, I try to because it sounds clunky. It doesn't sound good. But um, that's all. That's but we all should I was talk. Say. Let's talk songs. Let's talk songs. Here's what we're doing today. We're doing the the story of David. And I just ask you to pick twelve. The songs. The greatest story ever told. I believe, <laughs> I believe that, so. the Bible and me. I told you to pick 10 or 12 songs and then you'll have, you'll tell us why these songs mean something to you or how they relate to your life from, from whatever age you want to start from, from little to teens to whatever. So how should we do this? Should I, do you want to introduce the song and then talk about it? Or do you want to talk about it, then introduce the song? Uh, I would like to talk about a song and then introduce it. All right. Good. And I'll start at the first one that I sent you. And it's just, um, th- I, these are not like, necessarily in every case my favorite songs but these are songs that the key songs and moments in my life and one of them is my first concert was the nitty-gritty dirt band uh who some might know you know for sort of a country rock pioneering group uh and the concert i saw i was like i think seven or eight my dad and mom when they were so it was like when they were still together you know which wouldn't last that long uh they took me to carnegie hall to see this show and my dad was like a at that point a middle-aged older jewish guy in new jersey i don't know how he got into bluegrass but he liked bluegrass and that's why all these years later it's the direct cause how i have ended up a guy who's lived in new york and out in l.a for the last 30 years I've been a country music fanatic and written the country musical CMA awards yeah. for 
20 years. Brad Paisley, we wrote his book together. It's all because that's why when you take your kid to a concert or a museum, you never know how things are going to resonate. And there was a record my dad loved. He loved this. I think he got into them because they did a famous version of the song Mr. Bojangles, which he liked. Yep, I know uh, that version for sure. But uh, the the song I'm going to play was uh, a song that was made when I was a little kid. I heard this and I was like, oh, wow, like love sounds complicated and uh and it's like a sad beautiful version of a song by a guy who i would end up working with writing liner notes for interviewing on my tv show being just one of the guys who helped define my sense of humor such as it is it's a song called uh uh living without you originally by randy newman uh but i think my favorite version of it ever is this version by the nitty-gritty dirt band the song's only two minutes long it's a short song it's a short version and it's beautiful and yeah let's hear it Milk truck brings the sun up Paper hits my door The subway shakes my floor And I think about you It's time to face the emptiness Of another lonely day And baby it's so hard Living without you Yes, it's so hard It's so hard It's so hard Living without you Alright, as a person who doesn't know anything about Nitty Gritty Dirt Band other than this song now and Mr. Bojangles, if I wanted to start, can you recommend an album that I should jump into first? Yes, Uncle Charlie and His Dog Teddy. Uh, Which is this? This song's this, from there. This, this is one of my favorite albums. It actually has, it's got covers of a Kenny Loggins. It's, I think Kenny Loggins, like before. I know you're like a Footloose guy. Uh, Kenny, <laughs> I know the older stuff too. But Kenny Loggins, I think his first thing might have been this cover. Uh, was it House of Pooh Corners on this? And there's, I think there's two Kenny Loggins. One obviously you would know House of Pooh Corner. Yeah. But I think this was like the first break he ever had with wow. them covering on this record so it's a masterpiece of an album and it's weird how the world works like uh the singer uh, you're hearing is jeff Hanna of the nitiger derp and he's one of the maybe the i guess you'd have to say the main lead singer for the whole journey mm. his he's married to a great singer songwriter matresa berg and we have become through Twitter like constant companions. I think they like Jeff Hanna who sang that. I've I don't know if I've ever met him in person. I don't know, but like he liked whatever I did on Instagram this morning. You know, it's like they were constantly responding to each other during the pandemic. She's very political. Uh, his wife uh, very political. We're always going back and forth, yeah. and having fun on that sort of thing. But it's crazy that. Yeah, that was I was a kid in Carnegie Hall and then I ended up working on a giant corporate event for years in Carnegie Hall and I would always for like 15 years I'd be there in empty Carnegie Hall like working and I would always go up to the box where I sat with my parents. Oh, and, that's really nice. And, and remember like I remember my mom going um what is that perfume? And it was pot. It, <laughs> yeah. was, it was the pot of Carnegie <laughs> Hall in the 70s. It's the best perfume, Mom. Yes. Well, I'm, it was funny. I'm not a pothead. I've never been a drug person. No, me neither. But yeah, yeah come on. Uh, no, I'm joking. <laughs> uh, but it, I just, I still laugh at thinking about my, and my dad was less, I think, less uh, innocent uh, <laughs> at that time. Um, so do you guys uh, 
I'm talking about Naked Lunch again. Do you guys have like a wish list? Because I feel like you guys can get anyone you want. Um, you know what I mean? Like you, like you know people. Like you're connected. So is Phil. So like anyone you guys want, you can get. Like when I get someone, it's a miracle because I've worked <laughs> so hard. But when you get someone, I just feel like you can get, you have a big reach. You know, it's been interesting to ask people, mm -hmm. uh, and I'm never good at that. Like, I'm actually oddly uncomfortable, and people have been great, like, you know, but, you know, the, the wish list, what's funny is that Phil says, like, Springsteen is number one on his list, and the thing is, like, I haven't written John Landau, and right. I, I don't want, you know, and I could, actually, I, or Marilyn Laverty, I could write them and I've say- I've reached out for Springsteen, like, three times, and they're lovely when they say no. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I don't think, you know- I think what we wanted to do was get the show launched, which it is now, and then hopefully the people who want to do it will more and more say when they see Phil, because Phil is more out and about. He's got his own, you know, somebody feels yeah. a huge deal. I hope we can now do more people who want to be on the show. You'll totally get Springsteen. Uh, I, interestingly, okay, Cheryl Crow, I wrote uh, Scooter, her manager. And Pam, her scooter wine trout. Yes, exactly. Yeah. The good scooter, as we call him, the tall good scooter. <laughs> the good scooter. And I wrote him, and he immediately said, "Absolutely, we'll make this happen." Uh, and then they said, "She's going to be at the Sunset Marquee." So, and I, when I moved here for Rolling Stone, I lived at the Sunset Marquee. I told Jan, I would uh, Jan Winter, that I would live at the Sun. I would I would move to L.A., but I needed to stay at the Sunset Marquee where I'd always not Jan Hammer, the guy who not wrote Jan the, my asked, advice. I asked all Jans. <laughs> Uh, but I asked, yeah, Winter was the first one. And I and he said, I said, I'll go there if I can stay at the Sun Mar Sunset Marquee until I find an apartment. And I didn't try that hard to find an apartment because I love the Sunset Marquee. The funny thing is, just like different worlds of TV mm -hmm. and music, uh, when Phil and I arrived there to interview Cheryl, he had never, he goes, I've never been here. And I was like, how could that be? Because I've spent yeah, half my sense. life there. And it's like, because the TV comedy world don't, that's not their hotel. That's not their thing, no. Uh, and the funny thing is, you mentioned like getting uh, Springsteen. When we walked in, Steve, little Steven was there, uh, like at the, uh, at the restaurant. I mean, I, I was like, do I, st but we were with Cheryl and I didn't want to walk over and go, hey, will you do it, you know, Steven? But uh, hopefully well, he will too. He did my show. I'm sure he'll yes. do your show. Yes. Um, well, what about, I assume Carrie Underwood's on the list. Uh, I When I was at the Grammys this year, I talked to uh, uh, her manager and Carrie, and uh, I think they said, yeah, she'll absolutely do it. She's heading out on tour. It's just finding a date when we're... When you're all together. Because we haven't done one Zoom yet. We might be doing... We might do some... It's hard to have lunch, though, when you're Zooming. Well, there's one idea we have for a show that wants us on, or and wants you, Phil on. You just order them lunch. They don't know what they're getting, and they, you just send it to them? Well, this is a podcast that wants Phil on, okay. and I think the idea is that if one of us has to be separate, at least, what we do is order bagels in both cities okay. and then do a comparison argument All right. but nice. no so far we've been in the room up yeah close. stay in the room stay in the room yeah i think that's the way you do it yes all right song number two song number two if i can get my phone back on oh well it's this one's on the fact that a lot of people think i'm even older than i am because uh on that show the 60s the, when that the series on cnn mm -hmm. tom hanks company and mark Herzog, it's the 60s the 70s the 80s but the 60s hit pretty hard and the first episode was on the beatles british invasion and i'm for reasons i can't even explain i consulted on it and i'm all over it to the point where like tom hanks at the beatles uh grammy tribute said 
David, have you seen the latest edit of the show? Because he knew that I was, you know, helping with it. Yeah. And, and and he's the first. Per- I think I'm the first person, or he's the first. We're the most seen people in that episode, which right. is nuts. You're all over it. It's fun though. Well, I like. Listen, as ugly as I am to look at, I like being on TV. It's fun, but uh, because of that, I have all these people who always are saying. God, remember when they played Sullivan? I'm like, no, no, no I don't I actually. It's like single and, digits. It, and, but the actual um, thing I do remember is a next song, which is the Raspberries, who are the maybe the most the, the first great power pop Beatles group. I am exactly the right age to have. They hit me hard, and they were on midnight uh, Don Kirsch's rock concert or a midnight special and that I remember seeing I can remember being in the upstairs my dad's office when he started his own company mm-hmm. there was a big TV you know how TVs used to look like furniture <laughs> yeah maybe there was laundry on top of it and I saw the raspberries and I think I, I saw a version them doing this song everyone knows go all the way so I picked another song I remember them doing on TV and it's a great rock song which again it's like I love the Beatles but there's something about the Raspberries' early records that are, it's kind of like the Beatles, the Who doing the Beatles. That's what it sounds like to me, like this song does. And did you watch it in black and white or color? It was color. All right, here we go. This is Tonight. felt like the, the knack were like the raspberries but the production of the knack is just a little more slick well a lot more slick i i have to say it's just I, i'm very influenced by the first album i heard the first groups i heard mm-hmm. this kind of defines what i like in music if yeah. i i have to say it's like a crunchy hyper melodic version of rock and roll it's you know and then it's funny like uh you know, I worked on these books with Ringo. People, again, very much associate me as like, I've been called like a Beatles scholar and all that. And I'm not. I'm not that. I love the Beatles. But I worked backwards to the Beatles from the Raspberries. And weirdly, when Eric Carmen was on the road with, uh, who I had already known a little, he was on the road with Ringo. And it was super funny because like, I, I, I mean, I'm an original Raspberries fan. Now, the political realities of the last few years have made my relationship with Eric a little more tense. A little tough. But I love this music. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and I'm sitting here staring at the Cars album that's up there. Which Cars member signed that, that, car, that record? The, uh, the Panorama? Yeah. Uh, Greg Hawks, Elliot, and Rick is in the middle. Oh, you got Rick. Well, yeah, when they played the Palladium that on that when the last album came out in 2011, yeah. yeah, Rick came out and he signed through the fence. He signed, he signed, uh, he signed that one for me, and he signed, he signed a couple things. He was good. What was that show like? I love the Cars, and I saw them as a teenager, and they were not a great live band. They were a little, I mean, they weren't. Te- they sounded musically fine, but there was, a, it was like a charisma free zone. It's a it it still was, and it was um, 
David Robinson wore headphones and he was like behind a glass thing. And Rick sang the Ben Orr songs also. And um, yeah, it was just, it, it was, I was glad I got to see them, but it wasn't that exciting of a show. They sounded great, but it wasn't, they're not showmen really. Well, and listen, not everyone has to be. Uh, that first Cars record was, uh, yeah, that could easily be on this list because it was massive in my life. For sure. Um, going to the next song on my list, I'm trying to move this along like uh, Christy would. You know, uh, <laughs> well, Christy right now would be saying, it, we're done. It's been too, yes. it's been 40 minutes. Let's get out of here. I'm doing this and Christy's uh, out of love for Christy. So I'm going to keep moving along. The next song I picked is, I'm trying to spotlight the moment, the fact that popular music could mean everything, that it could be great art. And there's two records that I could have picked. I was trying to pick one that might be less familiar to the uh, you know, to the audience here. Not that it's un an unfamiliar song, but the records that really drove home the artistry of music to me were Songs in the Key of Life by Stevie Wonder, which I still think there's an argument that ev it's, the, it's the most impressive song cycle of all time. I think there's a, I, I would argue that. Uh, and I've been in arguments where it's, is it Pet Sounds? Is it Sgt. Pepper? Is it whatever? I think it's maybe my, and, and the other one is Blood on the Tracks by Bob Dylan, which also might be my most impactful record. I know uh, you have mixed feelings about some Bob, but uh, so I picked Stevie Wonder, uh, a song called Love's in Need of Love Today, which just to show you how much your youthful impression, because this came out, I think, 76, and it made such a deep impression on my young mind that to this day, like last year, I did the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 show, and I asked her to sing Love's in Need of Love Today. 9-11, the original uh, America Tribute to Heroes, which is really the television show that made me a TV writer, producer. Uh, I was a head writer for that, and that was, but the first, that was the first show I was ever head writer on, and that's really why my career turned from being a journalist to being in TV writing and production. And so on that show, it was like, this is 9-11 was the Tuesday, the Friday night, I get a call from Joel Gallen, who was executive, says, I'm going to do a, the networks all asked me to do a telethon, and we might have these artists, and, and he said, Stevie Wonder, he goes, what should Stevie sing? And my mind from, I didn't have my records, I think you've seen my house, you've walked in a little bit, I don't have my records alphabetized. I, it's like when I oh need, my God. everything's all over the place, so I can't find anything, <laughs> you know, I just have what I have, uh, and now in streaming, it's okay, you just play what you need to play, but back then, this was before streaming, and this is 2001, and I just off the top of my head as a teenage or a kid listening to this song, I would have been, yeah, like, I would have been 13 or whatever, I said, love's in need of love today. So this song has reoccurred to me throughout my life. It came up in a discussion with a big, big producer on a project that I'm working on right now that I can't talk about yet. It came up today. This song is That's, such a big song in my life. I'm just going to say it. Amazing. Well, if you listen to the song, the thing that is amazing about it, I mean, it, this is... When I say Stevie Wonder is the most visionary artist I've ever known, and I worked with him a few months ago, and he's still, he's so inspiring. But this song, I chose it. I never found my CD, so I didn't play it until he came in to rehearse it, because he agreed it was the right song. If you listen to the lyrics, this song sounded like it was written 
for 9-11, for yeah. the telethon, and it wasn't. It was written in 76, and it's just visionary. All right. Love's in need of love today. Good morning, evening, friends. Here's your friendly announcer. I have serious news to pass on to everybody what I'm about to say couldn't mean the world's disaster could change your joy and laughter to I've said this on the show before. I bought this album when I was probably in eighth grade. I got it through the Columbia Record and Tape Club. And the reason I bought it was because I loved Starsky and Hutch. And Starsky, uh, this is the album he would put on when he had chicks over to the apartment. It's still the album I have when I have chicks over. <laughs> Don't tell Fran. Um, the Ringo book. Let's talk about that real quick. This isn't a book that you can just go out and buy at Barnes & Noble. You have to order this online. Is it even still available? Is it limited? What's Yeah, there, uh, it actually... The original version, there were two versions, mm -hmm. one which is the in relatively inexpensive coffee table edition with all sorts of nice features, but that's like, uh, it was 50-something, I okay. think. That's not bad. And now, uh, and there was a signed edition with even more bells, a lot more bells yeah. and whistles, but also Ringo signature, which yeah. is hard to yeah, get Yeah, because he now. doesn't sign stuff. Um, and that was a lot more money, uh, but if you have... If you or have rich friends, you know, it's good <laughs> right. to uh, And it's beautiful. Um, we did two books during the pandemic. It's insane. You know, the first was about the all-star band, which was fun. And then he said, which is something I never thought he'd say. He goes, What's, help me with the one on the Beatles. And it was a, he had a very specific idea. Well, that's because you're, you're a scholar. You're a Beatles yes, scholar. Yes, I am a Beatles scholar. Uh, yes. My, my, even my son was like, when he was in, studying overseas a couple of years ago, before, right before the pandemic, he said like, uh, he was in Europe and my friend and I said, we're going to go over and meet him in London. And he goes, dad, I want you to take me and show me Liverpool because you know so much about Liverpool. I go, I have never been to Liverpool. <laughs> I don't know anything and about so, it, son. But I got, you know, Ringo and Elizabeth Freund set me up and I now know Liverpool. That's and, cool. And it's great. Uh, but what do you do with this book? Are you writing text? Are you just kind of steering him in the right direction? Are you putting things in order? What exactly is your job when you work on a Ringo book? Uh, I interview him. Okay. Uh, and then we, I transcribe and help shape and go over okay. with him. And that's, it's, you know, it's his book, but I help him write it. You're kneading the dough. You're helping it. You're massaging everything. Yes. Good. And I assume he'll be on the pod, on your podcast soon. Uh, I, I hope very soon, yes. <laughs> BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
Okay, well, this is a nice springboard, Ringo, into the next song. Yes. The next one is um, Paul McCartney's song, Jet. And it's uh, Paul McCartney, the Beatles, here's where the Beatles, like, I, as I said, I'm more of a 70s kid. Like, and still, in my taste, you can see from the CV Wonder, I think a lot of my musical passions are from, like, 76 into, like, the new wave artists. Like, I'm looking at, in Pat's room, like, the Elvis Costello, My Aim is True album. Like, that's a massively important album in my uh, sensibility. So I'm, like, a real 70s kid. And I just remember, like, A, I remember going to meet Paul McCartney, uh, and in South America, going to South America, and him being in the back of the bus. This was in Argentina. What year is this? This is ninety. God, I... what year was Hope of Deliverance out? Mm, I can look it up. Keep talking. I'll yes. look it up. But in any case, I'm in the back of his tour bus in Argentina, and he goes, "Any thoughts about the set list, David?" And like, I go, "Yeah." I go, "More wings." And he goes, what? I go, like, less Beatles, more Wings. I'd like to hear a little bit more Band on the Run. Like, I, because that's the truth is just age. I'm sorry, you were going to. 1992. Okay, so 1992, uh, around that time, I was on the road. Is that right? 1992? That's when the album came out. Okay. In any case, (laughs) around this whole era, uh, I'm around him a lot. Oh, yeah. And he was like, David, you're the only one who wants to hear more band on the run and less Beatles and uh, uh, and people are probably still mad at me but Paul McCartney ended up mainly Linda McCartney this huge role in my life because I was on the road with them when I met I just started I just met my wife and Linda McCartney was so nice to me she took a photo of me and said use this for your books which I did for many years she also said uh, do you have a girlfriend and I said I just met a girl Recently, I said a couple weeks ago, I met a girl and she goes, I want to meet her. And Fran happened to be on the same, on the East Coast at this and point. And did Fran say, I don't want to meet the McCartneys? <laughs> she didn't. We. What's funny, on the podcast, on the Wives episode, which people can hear if they go to Naked Lunch and search that, please do, and write a five-star review uh, afterwards. But on that one, I, I did... Fran and I hashed it out like what she remembered and like Phil asked this amazing question which we again you know how when you're married to someone you have your stories that you always you know love but you don't reassess them like because no one else there's no other outside person sharing the conversation exactly just the two of you yeah but Phil said did you tell her that Linda McCartney because what happened was we had lunch first weird she she came out to watch sound check and paul mccartney then and now has the greatest sound checks in the world because he doesn't do anything from the show he just does requests and spontaneous things and it used to be for nobody for no one to quote the beatles one of his songs (laughs) but and then i think in the more recent years i was at one of them and i think he now uses it for charity fundraisers so that like people who donate to great causes or or workers in a great like a whatever fight he believes in, they're invited to it for free. But this was sort of in the early days of that. And Fran was like, who's not a music person, which comes out in the episode. It's hysterical. I please listen to that. But in any case, like she, I said, Phil goes, did you tell her that after lunch, Linda McCartney pulled you aside and said, marry that girl right away, which is what happened. Right. And I go, 
I don't think I would have told her that. And Fred goes, no, he didn't tell me that till much later. Cause, and Phil goes, because it would have scared you off. And it's like, yes, True, it absolutely would have scared her off. I'm but, scared now. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so I'm still scared. Uh, but yeah, so Paul McCartney, uh, really important in my life. I'm, I, I think I, in high school, I would have told you, like when I was discovering the Beatles in college and high school, that I was, I'm more of a Lenin guy because I was, you know, so political and yeah. deep. And then as you become an, an old family man and you survive and live, I have to say more and more, it's like Paul's stuff really speaks to me as just a domestic, boring guy. It's actually like- And well, uh, there's so much more of it too. I mean, be, sadly, because John passed, yes. but I mean, there's so much McCartney music. It actually pisses me off when I think about it. Not just John, George. I did meet George, and the brush with George was so great. And I was supposed to spend more time with him because uh, he had checked with Ringo about who he should do an interview with, and it never. I mean, after it never got to really happen because George was taken so, you know, cruelly and quickly and yeah. quickly. Uh, but yeah, in any case, the the uh, this. It, what's funny is I am like a Beatles lover. It's just all done in this weird time. It's almost like Benjamin buttoning it. It's like I go backwards. And even like doing this book uh, called Lifted with Ringo this that came out this year, I have to say, like working on it, I fell more in love with early Beatles than I ever have. I think I always had sort of a musical, because I came in with the raspberries, I always liked the sort of rubber sole revolver on more than the early stuff. Yeah. Because I don't remember what it was like to turn on Ed Sullivan and see them change the world. But between working on the Beatles Grammy salute where we traced that, and then also the book, I sort of have discovered how much I love the early Beatles as well. And the song, I love Hard Day's Night, is such a great album, top to bottom. I oh, love it. It is great. So the song I chose for this was just one of the, that sort of like the era where I discovered McCartney. And I still think this is one of my favorite. Just, I love the rock wings. Yeah. Like people think wings are just ethereal or just whatever, silly love songs. They think this, it's fluff. There's it's nothing, not yeah. fluff. No, Jet, let's hear Jet. All right. Don't get James Coburn and Christopher Lee on your album cover if you're recording fluff. <laughs> no, those guys don't suffer fools. By the way, that's there could be a dissertation, or probably is already a book about. Like you think about who's on Sgt. Pepper and who's on Band on the Run. It's super weird. Yeah, it is. Like it's it's interesting and totally friggin' weird. Like we're because I don't even know we're Christopher Lee and Coburn. With did they just happen to be at the studio where these this photo shoot was taking place and they just said do you guys want to be in the i'm trying thing? to remember the story i think it was sort of like people who were around london working that week yeah. you know and the photographer I, I i need to double check on that it's but it yeah it wasn't quite like all the cutouts that they used on sergeant pepper it right. was like these are the real they just people sort of gathered the real people there's all sorts of weird things like uh what is the song um one of the songs on the record is like the drink to me drink to my 
Picasso's last, uh, you know, that song, I think Dustin Hoffman might have inspired one of the songs. Like, they were just hanging out. I think it was the uh-huh. era of the 70s when they were hanging out. And by the way, I just recently got to hang out with Dustin Hoffman backstage at the, uh, you know, the Paul Simon tribute. And it was like crazy because this is, as you get older, the fun, there's not much that's that fun about getting older, but you realize, oh, yeah, like when I was 12, he came into play at the Tenafly Racquet Club and ended up playing doubles with my dad and I. And he he wrote his he signed me a autograph with a peace sign, like that must have been seventy six or something like that. And then you know then I'm with him this year, you know, backstage at the Paul McCartney show, and it's super, it's amazing. I how, love Dustin Hoffman. I just, yeah, like right. you know people say like De Niro or you know or Pacino, but I always like Dustin Hoffman. He's my guy. The ultimate movie night, which happened when I was in in Vegas, because we did the Grammys in Vegas this year, Phil calls me, goes, there's no way you can come back tonight, is there? I go, no, there's absolutely no way, because there was like so much going on. I was dealing with literally, not only Trevor Noah in the show, but also the the president of Ukraine. You know, it was a it was an unusual day so or two. what is he taunting you with? What does he have in store that you can't his movie go? Night, his movie night was, and I did get there for Heartbreak Kid, thank God. I got there for Albert Brooks, uh, coming to a, uh, no, sorry, defending your life and got to meet Albert Brooks, who's my hero, in the best way because he thought he knew me. So he came up to me. It was the best thing that could have ever <laughs> That's happened. That's perfect. Because uh, I was been too nervous to introduce myself to him because I'm such a fan. But when I was in Vegas, he said, I'm showing Tootsie. And I believe, and this is what did happen Dustin Hoffman, Bill Murray, and Elaine May are going to watch it in a little movie screening room. And they did, and then they told stories about it. They had, they had not the three of them been together, I think, since Tootsie. And he brought Tootsie up on Pilar's podcast, and I love Tootsie. It's, I think it's so oh, perfect. It's unbelievable. And there's a lot of talk about the, uh, Tootsie and Heartbreak Kid on this Elaine May podcast. And Sidney Pollack might be the only director that's a good actor. When he puts himself in a film, he's really good. Yes. Like, it doesn't take me out of the movie at all. Like, I know it's Sidney Pollack, but he's so good. You'll hear some interesting uh, Sidney Pollack insight mm. by Elaine May in, uh, on our episode. Good or bad? No, I'm not going to say good. Ma- I mean, I think all mainly right. good. I will say I agree with you. He's in a twilight zone. I'm a, again, with the Beatles, like, I discovered retroactively uh, when I grew up in New York. On You're Channel, a twilight zone scholar. I am. No, <laughs> I am. But he, I do. Rod Serling like Bob Dylan and Stevie Wonder is one of the, and the next person I'm going to play a song by, the people who taught me what great writing is mm-hmm. in music and beyond, that Rod Serling is 100% one of them. I love Rod Serling. And they used to, he used to, they used to air reruns every night or something at 11 in New York on Channel 11. And I, my bedtime was like 10 or whatever. But my dad always told stories about going out to the, like into the kitchen. And I had snuck out every night trying to watch Twilight Zone and falling asleep. And I, he would like put me to bed and I'd go, no, dad, Twilight Zone. <laughs> uh, so I love I loved that show. But there's a Twilight Zone where Sidney Pollack is just acting and he's great. He's yeah, just great he's in everything really he does. Good. All right, so this next song, I'm so glad you picked this song because oh yes, when I read the title, I'm like, I don't think I know this song. Well, of course, as soon as I played it i'm like oh my god I yeah i love this song but i didn't i didn't know that that was the title of the song for some reason well it's funny is i think this might be Joni's in a pop sense her biggest hit yeah uh 
And it was the reason I chose it. I love Joni Mitchell. I ended up having getting to know her and and she's a huge I'm a huge fan. I then lost touch with her and she's you know she was so ill. I recently got reunited with her and Bonnie Raitt because I wrote something for them to present at the Grammys and it was amazing because I didn't think I'd ever talk to her again. And is she doing better now? She seems so good. All right, good. You know, and I think she was not so good for a yeah, long I thought, time. I thought she might pass. So it's good that she's still she with us. She seemed great. She seemed like herself. It was amazing. But the reason I chose this song was I have a very strong memory. I tend to talk about my dad because I think I talked music more with him. But a lot of my musical influences were my mom's eight-track tapes. Like, like the, a lot of the stuff I like most are like bread. We're going to talk about <laughs> another one, a big person who I wrote a book about. These were the eight-track tapes that, you know, a mom, you know, there's dad jokes and mom, mom rock. And uh, so this was uh, a song that my mom uh, had an album that she had on eight track tape. And th- my mom, who I was not, I wish I, and I, I always say this and some people like it and some people don't, but I always say like, I don't know if I have much wisdom to share with people and people will ask me for like advice on writing or TV or music shit. I don't know if I have any good advice really, but my only advice in life is if you have a parent and they're still alive and they weren't horrible, <laughs> I always say my only regret is I wish I'd been a little nicer Mm -hmm. to my mother. I just, that's just, and I, and and I, I don't, I know there's exceptions to those rules. Like if people were horrible and abused you, I just think now that my parents are gone, I wish I'd been a little better of a son. I don't, I don't know if I was terrible, but to my mom in particular, I just think I was a little bit, I stayed an annoyed teenager for too long. And so the reason I picked this is when my mom played this song, she sang along and I once told her, oh my God, mom, you sing like Joni Mitchell. And she said, towards the end of her life, she goes, that's the nicest thing you ever said to me. And I wish I'd said nicer things more often, but I'm glad that's when I always think of Joni Mitchell when I hear my mom. And I'm glad I said something nice along the line. And this is Help Me from Court and Spark. Great song. So good. Help me, I think I'm falling in love again. When I get that crazy feeling, I know I'm in trouble again. I'm in trouble because you're a rambler and a gambler and a sweet-talking ladies' man. That's a great song. So good. So good. Now, um, let me ask you this, because we were t- talking about your relationship with your parents a little bit. So would you say, I'm sure I know the answer, your sons have a better relationship with you and Fran than you had with your parents? I, I Actually, I don't want to say that. I don't know that it's true. I, I will say, like, it's really this Wives episode was amazingly revealing to me and mm-hmm. interesting because uh, and I think it will be to people who like and and not just it's like Monica and Phil like I learned it's like you can know people for 
decades and not know certain stories. Yeah. Like, and we tell the stories of our honeymoons and our, like, stuff I've never really, how you met kind of stuff. Some stuff that we haven't ever talked about. Um, so your kids will be hearing these stories for the first time. There is one phrase early in the show that I'm wondering if my kids will be able to listen after that. <laughs> uh, I will say... I can't wait. I, I don't want to say I'm a... I, I, I don't want to. I don't want to compare what kind of parent I. I am. just think parents no. of of. I think our parents of that age they're a little more hardened. They weren't as open and soft as maybe you and I are with our kids. The cliches are a little different. in in my in in my parents, like my dad was actually a great dad, and I will say that at his funeral, the thing I said, the thing that you you know, and I had, I he was fading with Alzheimer's for a yeah. while. And I didn't know what do you say about a guy because he had a he was a business successful businessman he was had a, quite a life, but the most amazing thing is he didn't have a dad he did not have a dad and he was a really great dad so I and it's a complicated life he had a complicated marriage and there's, you'll hear some of that I think on the on that podcast and in, in therapy if you if I ever I, whatever there's better help is one you know that like there's one of those companies that we do advertising for and I'm like I got to do better health and uh, <laughs> uh, and talk about this more um, I don't want, I don't know that I'm as good a dad as my father in some ways I think he was a much better dad I'm definitely my dad was a businessman traveling salesman for yeah. part of it he wasn't always around and dad's Warner was around but I actually think he was great, and I think my mom was very loving and an amazing person. She had some complications in her life, and she was manic depressive, and she wasn't diagnosed in my childhood. Yeah. It made for a lot of trauma, but I think most of it was the price was paid by her more heavily than gotcha. by any of us. So I, I will say it, it impacted who I married. It impacted how I am as a dad, but... I actually don't have that feeling of like how great I am. I think I'm a little bit more of the modern dad who wants his kids to think he's cool and <laughs> and of course. Uh, and I think Fran. I, I think I married someone. I don't know if I would have be- gotten married or had kids if I hadn't met someone who so clearly there's no way I was going to stop her from being a mother. Right. So I just think I'm lucky that I had such a that Fran is such a great mother and that I had to be a dad. Well, and again, I wasn't trying to put words in your mouth. Yeah. I just wanted to. I just wanted to yeah, yeah. see. What, and here's my next question: because Phil has two kids. Yes, you have two kids. I see a podcast with you and the kids. Oh well, we after he heard the wives episode, he goes, "This is what we should like. There should be tons of." And I do believe if the show keeps going and going, I think that's the. Like, I would like a wives episode every season. I would like a yeah. kids episode every season. Yes, uh, I. I think. Yeah, it's weird. Like. There are these podcasts now where it's all about the booking, but I don't think those age as well. Uh, yeah, I, I get more emails when I have the kids on or Pilar's on. I just do. People are just like, they, because I think they can they can relate to that more than, you know, than me talking with, I don't know, Steve Lukather. Right. No one can relate to that, but everyone can relate to their wife. I, or, I relate more to Steve Lukather. Of course. But no, but I, uh, like, I, uh, I had that with, um, uh, I had a show on Bravo for two seasons. I hosted and I a show. I didn't know this at all. Yeah, a show called Musicians. What year was that? It was 2001. We were supposed to do it. 9-11 delayed it. So it was okay. like 2002, 3, I think, or something like that. 
Sheryl Crow was is, on that. Is that anywhere where I you can, can watch, see it? You can watch the Sheryl Crow episode. I think it's on YouTube somehow. I don't but, I didn't know uh, about that at all. Yeah, oh, no. Two seasons. Uh, and it happened by accident. That guy, Joel Gallen, who I mentioned, who was producing. Yeah, he uh, was an things. MTV guy. Yeah. Yeah. And he was asked to produce it. And he asked me to be the writer for it, like, a in, you know, prepping someone to interview. Mm-hmm. And we tried to book, I think I remember it was like Little Steven and Robbie Robertson or whoever it was to host it. And then he got. He basically, I think, either quit or got pushed out, and the studio was looking for someone who could host this, because I think they couldn't afford... Bravo, at that point, was not owned by Universal or whatever. Okay. And I and they said they were looking for a host, and then separately, another producer sent them footage of me interviewing Don Henley in Texas, and I made him laugh, and they said... Anybody who can make Don Henley laugh, <laughs> for that sure. should be our host. <laughs> for so sure. I was upgraded from writer to host and for I had like and it was an amazing experience in every way. It's a whole that could be a whole we should do a retrospective on some now, point of that. Let me ask what when you're a host on TV, what I only ever see you as casual David. Are you are you in a jacket? Are you in a college shirt? What did you wear? They they had a the hardest job in history was being my stylist. <laughs> they had, they had, they took me shopping. They bought me clothes. They and was your hair longer at that? Because I've seen pictures where your hair's longer. I try to remember on the show. I think it was, well, where it was, it was longer. I, okay. I don't, re- I, I don't quite remember. But yeah, if you look up the, I'm going to wa- watch show, it later tonight. I think Shellcrow musicians. You could still see that one. But it was crazy. Well, the reason I brought it up was, but when you talk about like the host. You got to like the host. Yeah. On that show, Bravo went out hard. Like the way TV networks, and I was just discussing this with a huge TV producer, like the way TV historically was marketed was when there's a new show, they really just promote the first episode. They launch it. Yeah. And they had the terrible decision. Like, and I, because I, the new, you know, the episode recently with Cheryl Crow, I was thinking about this. Like we had Cheryl Crow, Alanis Morissette, Barry Manilow, Randy Newman, Tony Bennett, all these people. This this uh, is incredible. Elvis Costello. All of these people were my first, like, run. And they chose Lou Reed to be the one they launched hard with. But they launched it with a picture of Lou looking like, fuck you, which is always what Lou looked like. And I loved Lou. Yeah, I like Lou. Yeah, me too. Lou, Lou is not the easiest TV interview or the best upbeat energy. He might not make you come back for episode two well the funny thing is he loved doing the show so much so that at the beginning of the episode he was being a total prick to me he wouldn't answer a question it was like a hostile witness by the end he was like i love this show i want to do let's do another one and (laughs) cut to a year or two later he was on the grammys and he presented with dave grohl and he kissed me he gave me a kiss on the lips the only two men who've ever kissed me on the lips were my dad and lou reed on the stage of madison square garden because lou said you know you saved me two million bucks because for the show we made them do like a stripped down performance and he did it with just his bass player and he then realized oh my god i can do certain gigs with just my bass player and make a lot more money so he loved me for that but in any case they promoted musicians on bravo with lou reed's face not and looking like this (laughs) like looking like he couldn't stand to be on tv and they didn't put my name 
not only are not a picture of me as host David Wilde, they didn't put my name on the ad. And I remember, and they put it all over every bus stop in the world or New York. So I think that Lou Reed's hosting this, maybe. Right, exactly. And, and Lou is not coming back the next week. And it's Barry Manilow. So that was, but I, I will Wouldn't say. Wouldn't you love to see Lou Reed interview Barry Manilow? <laughs> it, would, it would be nice. But uh, the, I will say, like two of the episodes were Tony Bennett and Barry Manilow the same day. We mm -hmm. did two a day because it was at Sony Studios, which has since closed because it was so expensive. Did those two run into each other? I imagine I think they, they, would, they would love to they, talk to each other. They might have, but I will say that Barry, my mom went to Barry, I think, mm -hmm. and my dad went to Tony Bennett. And did they're, did, they're, did they're, your mom and dad run no, into oh, each no, other? No, they were kept separate <laughs> intentionally. And, and, and like I still think, because that's why they were still here, and I'm so glad. Like That's a great my gift. Da my dad said something to me like, uh, he goes, David, Tony Bennett is the ultimate class act in show business. He loves Sinatra. Yeah. And in addition to the bluegrass stuff, he goes, and he seems to think you're fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, thank you. Uh, yeah, no, that's quite a gift when you get to introduce your folks to two people like that that they enjoy. Oh, my dad, um, when he was dying, one of his last things, he was in a hospice and a nurse came up to me and goes, he kept on talking last night about Frank Sinatra, how you put him on a Frank Sinatra record, because I wrote the liner notes for duets, who, and Frank Sinatra was his hero, and I mentioned him in the opening of the liner notes, and he, like, that was one of his last thoughts, was that. It and meant, I'm like, it meant something. And it's, like, unbelievable to me. It's like, I couldn't pay my dad back for college, uh, certainly not then, but that was, so that was, that's very meaningful. Then my mom goes, you mentioned your father in the Sinatra notes, <laughs> and I mentioned her, but there was no organic reason to do so. And Neil Diamond, right. tits, and that I just forced down because I didn't want my mom to complain to me anymore. So you forced her in there? Yes. Okay, good job. All right, I know that this next song must relate to Fran. Yeah, and it's really interesting that I picked, uh, and Freud would have a field day with, why am I going right from the mother song to the <laughs> wife song? Very, I'm, I'm not happy about that. But yeah, the day I met Fran, or uh, the day I asked her out, she is not a music person, which is a big part of the Wives episode of Naked Lunch. And you can hear all more of this story. But the funny thing is, when I asked her out, she's not a music person. She didn't even have a CD player. And by the way, on the episode, she goes, because the CDs were new. It's like, CDs were not new. <laughs> uh, this was 1990, you know, like no, early 90s. No, they were not new, honey. Uh, but she didn't have a CD player. She only had one cassette. And she, she says she claims she had a like a Walkman or whatever to play it on. It was About Last Night, the soundtrack to About Last Night. Okay. But when I met her, I asked her out, and she goes, she didn't, she lied about where she was going because where she was going, even though she doesn't like music, she likes Rick Springfield. And she assumed, and then she knew I was a guy from Rolling Stone. She was like, I can't tell him I'm going to a, a Rick Springfield tour rehearsal with her best friend because they had a crushes everyone, on Rick Springfield. Everyone seems to think they need to hide their love of Rick Springfield, and we, you don't. I'm the biggest Rick Springfield yeah, fan. I please could, don't hide your love of Rick Springfield. So, and she goes later, you know, and Rick, and it's funny, like Phil and Phil Rosenthal and Monica said, does Rick Springfield know about this? I go, yes. He's yeah, had to hear this story many times, including and, when you were there on the Greatest Hits. Yeah, and Fran showed Fran, up. That's, Fran shows that's up. the day she showed up. <laughs> yes. Uh, but we both still love Rick Springfield. So for her, I'm picking uh, not the obvious Jesse's Girl, but uh, What Kind of Fool, which is actually one of my favorite Rick it's songs. It's a great song. This, and this is my favorite Rick Springfield album. Success hasn't spoiled me yet. Is you really 
with him he's not her type and doing all the things she used to do to me well I'd say something to her but I get so song this just popped in my head because i watched the taking of pelham one two three last night the original i didn't take it the original one i had never seen it before right and doris roberts is in it obviously from everybody loves raymond and then uh jerry stiller's in it obviously from we know him from seinfeld and king queens and when i watched it i was like they had no idea that 20 years after they were in this movie that they would be bigger than ever in their career ever no and it's funny uh also, Doris Roberts turns out to be part of uh, Elaine May's comedy repertoire company. Like when the, oh, wow. in all these early movies, Doris is like pops up in uh, A New Leaf. I think we watched, and I think she's in. I think she might be in Heartbreak Kid too. It's like she was just one of those That's cool. great New York actor. It's funny. It was recently Jerry Stiller. I think it was some birthday or anniversary of death. He, I don't think anyone ever made me laugh or laugh more than than Jerry Stiller. I think he's maybe. And he was also a real actor, mm-hmm. you know, like Rickles could be. But I think he was maybe the funniest. Just I, he was the greatest. Uh, Doris Roberts, obviously, it was really interesting with Phil discussing because Elaine May knew Doris and talked about her from the perspective as like a relatively young actress, and I then know. you know Phil got to know her in the later stages, as and, a, yeah, as an older woman. Yes, and we got uh, there's some amazing stories about um, Peter Boyle and uh doris on our we did an episode with ray and brad garrett and it was really interesting because it was like a reunion because phil sees ray they're in fact at the as we're recording this they're at the like phil went to the tribeca film festival to support ray oh yeah ray has a directorial debut debut yeah yeah and so they were just together like last night for that uh and but Brad Garrett's always a little bit more his own solitary, interesting, great character. Yeah. And like, uh, uh, but this reunion is on our show was wild. And, Brad, and you can hear that right now. That one is yes. out right now. Oh no, Brad Garrett. The funny thing is, and this is like the definition of what makes me happy. Like this is like a weird podcast where the four of us all have Don Rickles stories. So it's like dueling Don Rickles stories. And I have, I got to say, Holding my own on Don Rickles stories with, with those, those guys, three, yeah, I'm super impressed. I was the only one who had a White House Don Rickles story. <laughs> well, that that kind of trumps a lot of things. Don't say Trump. That's true. Uh, my favorite Brad Garrett joke is he says, uh, "I hope I don't screw it up." He said when he was when he was uh, a teenager, he was so tall that if they would go to an amusement park, his mom would say, "If we get separated, everyone meet at Brad." <laughs> <laughs> There's there's a great what's funny is like uh, on this Jay Roach Susanna Hoffs episode which I can't wait to hear that one uh, but like they realize that Peter Boyle I'm sorry on this Susanna Hoffs Jay Roach episode like they realize that Brad Garrett's in Jay's new show and he goes to Phil he goes any advice on working with the uh, with Brad he goes 
Uh, yeah, if he starts to fall, get out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> Jay Roach is is pretty tall too, though, isn't he? Yes, he's pretty tall. Yeah, uh, certainly compared to Susanna and I, who belong together. Did I, <laughs> did I say that? All right, next song. I know why you picked this song, of course. Oh, there's Brad Paisley calling. Should I put him on the show? <laughs> Go ahead. Sure. Brad. I'm on a podcast recording now. I am not watching the, sh the game because I can't take it anymore. Is, is, should, should I leave the podcast and go watch now? No. Okay. I am not. Uh, but I'm telling you, what, the podcast I'm doing is where you pick 12 songs that define your life. Do you know who has the 12th song? Um, Tiny Tim. <laughs> close, close. It's you, but I always compare you to. Uh, 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 I'm I'm currently on. Who am I on right now? What song? Uh, you're going to be talking a uh, cover of a Rolling oh, Stone. Cover the Rolling Stone, so I can name drop my Rolling Stone cover story. Right. Okay, uh, but I'm not I'm not watching the game. I can't take it. They don't deserve me anymore right now. They don't deserve you. I'll talk to you. Once uh, okay, over. bye. Um, um, nice. the cover of the Rolling Stone is one that I picked not because I, I did buy the single when I was a kid and it's probably like made me want to be a Rolling Stone writer probably at least told me what Rolling Stone was and I started going to the school library and reading old episodes old issues yeah but Rolling Stone ended up being a huge part of my life uh, you think yes no, it's, <laughs> no I'll tell you how huge a part of my is life it the, is it the most defining thing of your career though it's not to me okay but it is to everybody else because where, that's where we that's where I know you from. I mean, I know you from all these other things now, but literally David Wilde, I that name was on the cover and in the articles I read and just constantly and I didn't even know what you looked like back then. I didn't know who you were. I, didn't I just know. knew the name. I didn't even know. No, the the funny thing is is that I in my head like I mean, I'll just cuz you've known me for a long time like what basically happened was it was a huge part of my life. I got out of college. I worked at Esquire for two years. I didn't. Re I, I respected Esquire. Cosmo for two years. No, <laughs> I did the. I posed in the centerfold of Cosmo <laughs> for two years. No, I was. And then, but Jan Wenner tried to hire me away to write for us when he bought us. Okay. And I said no. Chris Connolly, a great guy. Chris Connolly sort of, I think, brought me over for an interview. And when I turned Jan down. He goes, how about Rolling Stone? He just called me back and said, you want to work at Rolling Stone? And what happened was the... Now, did you have to think about that for much... Uh, or was it an, I did. an instant... I, I did, because, by the way, Esquire, it's like... It, it was Esquire was a huge honor to uh, work there. Of course, there. yeah, that's, that was, that's huge. And I started a record column with... And I, I started a record column with this woman, Lisa Bain. I, never, I don't take credit, but I got to... It, in Esquire, you could work with great writers, and I was... I'd studied literature with a guy named William Kennedy at Cornell, who visited Professor Cornell. It was a great, great gig, and I was, I felt loved there, and I could have stayed there. But Rolling Stone was just, I grew up on Rolling Stone yeah. since the song we're going to play. And it's, it is to this day, it's, this is the only negative in my life is sometimes I, I will be introduced even by people who are friends, like at a party, like... Rolling Stone from Rolling Stone, Rolling Stone writer. <laughs> and it's super weird because I don't know what to say. Like, especially when you like walk on stage. Yeah. Like I was at a, a TV festival last weekend and they said, I don't, and it's like, you know, you don't know what bios people get or look at. And I don't, it's not like I have a, a team of publicists <laughs> saying, do not mention this, mention this, do not. No yeah. one, you know, I'm not famous, but I, 
if I, to the degree that people know me, Rolling Stone is always in there somehow. And sometimes I don't know how to not, I can't correct it. And the truth is I was still associated with Rolling Stone until four or five years ago. I still, listen, they, they, the song, our last song today was debuted in Rolling Stone because I still called them and say, okay, I'm doing this podcast. I have a theme song. You want to put it out there in a new story. And they were great yeah. to do it. You know, I appreciate it very much. Uh, but I haven't really been, I, I've been a TV writer, producer who does some journalism and some other stuff, film stuff, whatever, for 20 years. I still was on the masthead and still occasionally wrote some articles until five years ago or right. something, six, seven years ago, whatever. But I've really been, like, I've been doing the Grammys for 20 one years. Yeah, and the that's CMAs no, uh, for 20 yeah. years. No, no. And by the way, there's a lot of people who associate me with Grammys right. and stuff like that. But because it's music and there's a lot of music in my life, the Rolling Stone stuff never goes away. And I don't necessarily want it to go away. I just want to always be sure, guys, I'm not... That they know the other stuff too. Well, not only that, also, I don't want to get pissed off Rolling Stone. Like, it comes off sometimes, where was it? Yeah, it, yeah it's just a weird deal. I mean, and that's why I like to... Yeah, it's I. They gave me a lifetime of name drops, you know, right. and half the people I know. the The real truth is that it's kind of like Martha Quinn. You're never going to say her name without saying MTV. Exactly, and she hasn't been an MTV right. in, for, for <laughs> 20, 30 she years. She still looks exactly like yes, she did. Exactly. No, so it's it's just a funny thing like that. And the thing is, like Jan. By the way, I'd love to have Jan on the podcast. That would be amazing because there are some stories. <laughs> <laughs> we could tell on each other that would be amazing. Well, you, look, hopefully you're going to have 600 more episodes, so you'll you'll have these people on. That would be that would be good. All right, so Doctor Hook, the cover of the Rolling Stone. Here we go. Uh, don't touch me. Hey Ray. Hey Sugar. Tell them who we are. Well, we're big rock singers, we got golden fingers, and we're loved everywhere we go. That sounds like us. We sing about beauty and we sing about truth at $10,000 a show. Right. We take all kind of pills to give us all kind of thrills, but the thrill we never know is the thrill that'll get you when you get your picture on the cover of the Rolling Stone. Rolling Stone. Wanna see my picture on the cover? Wanna buy five copies for my mother? Wanna see my smiling face on the cover of the Rolling Stone? Now, did this song, in fact, get them on the cover of the Rolling Stone? It got there's there's before my time, but there was an like they were like a cartoon figure. It wasn't like a photo of them all together. I think it was like kind of a cartoon image, but they did get them on the cover. Of the Rolling Stone. Well, funny thing is, it's like I actually don't like that particular song that much. It's a novelty song. It's a novelty record that I bought. Yeah, I do love. There's like sharing the night together. So good when you're in love with a beautiful woman. Yep. Uh, the guy Dennis, the other singer who's not like Doctor Hook, I love his voice. So I, I do love, I do love me some Doctor Hook. And uh, it's kind of like a cross. Uh, what do I want to say? Cross promotion thing. Like they have a song about Rolling Stone, and then Rolling Stone would put him on the cover in a cartoon. Fa- I mean, you know, everybody wins in that case. Yeah, I w- I'll go back and check, but I believe it was not a big hit cover. <laughs> uh, <but laughs> Probably not. But it was a big hit But it song. worked. It worked for them. Yes. Now, the next song obviously relates to Mom. Uh, mom and me. Like, weirdly, uh, my mom loved this guy. Yes, and uh, I 
like, I guess what I'm more and more impressed with... The first time you were on the show, we did Neil Diamond episode. Yeah. Diamond's oh, no. Diamonds. I wrote a, I'd written a book yep. uh, about my love of Neil Diamond. And what's weird is that, like, this podcast is reminding me of, like, the length of my relationships with it. So it's like, it's not like just meeting people, but, like, when you realize, oh, yeah, I've known Neil Diamond for... 35 40 whatever it is it's insane like and like the first time i met him this is truth jan winter walked around the office of rolling stone this is my first few weeks there and he goes anybody like neil diamond (laughs) and i went because neil diamond's never been like hip and cool the funny thing is i actually believe he got hip and cool and he gives me a little credit for helping him which is crazy good but he was not at all in the 80s when no. I was got to Rolling Stone. That was not the height of the hipness no. at all. And I raised my hand and go, I love Neil Diamond. He goes, good. And the truth is, I think, he had started a anti-gun, a gun control, God knows how much progress we've made, a <laughs> gun control charity after John Lennon was killed and John was his friend. And Jan, that's, that's interesting because he was on originally on the Bang label, and their logo was a Derringer. Well, the Bang label was more about the uh, mob association of other true, people. That's than, true. That wasn't. That was not Neil's uh, label. Neil's bit. Right. Okay. Um, great. Great music, but so because of that, Neil, he because Neil supported the charity. I think Jan was like looking for someone to do the Rolling Stone interview. One of my favorite interviews I've ever done. I absolutely love Neil. We started a relationship that goes on to the day the pandemic started, I was doing his last big public performance. It was a charity event. He came out of like retirement from the road and did eight songs or seven songs wow. at a, uh, again, going back to my dad, this amazing event called Keep Memory Alive. It's an Alzheimer's benefit in Vegas. That's where I was when the pandemic hit. It was uh, Neil doing his last so as far as I know, big, great performance. Yeah. Maybe it'll go out when his Broadway show debuts or whatever. But it was phenomenal. Uh, and uh, I love the guy. He's been great in my life. And I've, you know, uh, I've stayed in touch. It's put like crazy moments. Uh, one more I'll share is uh, when we did the Grammy salute to Neil Diamond. It was like he was the Grammy salute to legends. And he was one of them getting his Lifetime Achievement Award. Like, I didn't know if he would be able to come. He had just retired from the road. Right. So I arranged for Mickey Dolenz, who you have got, you know, gotten to know, uh, to sing I'm a Believer. And then, like, a week before the show, Neil and his manager, Katie, his wife and manager, they called and said, he'll do it. He'll do the show. I said, well, we already have uh, Mickey doing I'm a Believer. He goes, let him do it together. And I was like, oh, my God, this is like a dream come true. <laughs> he goes, we've never met. And I went. What? I said, what? He goes. I've never met Mickey Dolenz. And I go, how could that, how could that be? How can that possibly be? Going back to like the sixties when he recorded I'm a Believer and it becomes the biggest hit that changed both their lives. They've never crossed paths anywhere. The only thing they'd ever done was once when Neil was on stage at the forum or something, he knew Mickey was there and he said, Mickey Dolenz is here. That's, but they never spoke or met. I hope there's a picture now of these two guys. Well, now there's a duet version that was on our show and it was amazing to be a part of that. Neil means so much to me, so I picked. He's a solitary man in my life. He's a, you know, just one of a kind. He's my Jewish Elvis. There, you know, I, I like the other Elvis, but I love Neil more. Uh, this is "Solitary Man" by Neil Diamond. The Linda was mine till the time that I found. 
who came along loved me strong That's what I thought Me and Sue But that too Don't know that I will But until I can find me A girl that'll stay Won't play games behind me And I'll be what I am A solitary man Solitary man I always forget about the horns in this song This is so hell, cool It's such a great track uh, Chris Isaac did it for me At the book party I had at the uh, Book Soup on sunset when i did a book my book about neil he did it like solo live and it was like really great because he's recorded it as yeah well. yeah he- but this original version is fantastic i have to say one thing like you mentioned my mom i was saying picking it more for me but my he did the nicest thing it ever did for me it's like again the sinatra thing with my dad and then when i wrote about him i think i mentioned how i was raised on him right and yeah when the article came out because it treated him with the respect he deserved, in my opinion. It was a real in-depth sort of article. And he called me, he goes, I want you to bring your mom to the show at the Brendan Byrne Arena in a month or two or whatever. I said, are you sure? He goes, yeah, yeah, I want you to bring bring your family. You bring them all. And so we went there, and that's nice enough. What that, kind of seats are those? Are they good seats? They were great seats. <laughs> but more importantly, right before the show, a security guard comes back, and he goes, Mrs. Wild, Mr. Diamond would like to see you. And we're ushered back into the, you know, uh, his his dressing room where he has laid out like every bit of his merchandise signed to her. Oh, my God. And he says, Mrs. Wild, I, Carol, I just want you to know you raised a mensch, which is uh, Hebrew for, I don't know. Uh, no, I mean, it, 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 like I, I tear up now thinking because my mom is gone, but yeah. she was so happy. And he goes, I would be honored. <laughs> this is like the class act. <laughs> I would be honored if you would take a picture with me. And wow. so he took a picture with her and then his photographer sends it to her. And it was on her bedside table till the day she died. Of course. Like, why would it not be? Right. When we went yeah. back after she died and they're packing up. That was still there. And so is that in your home now? It's in my brother's home. All right. Because he was a better son. Um, and he didn't a, get her that picture. Uh, yeah, exactly. All um, right. Well, we'll let him have it. Yes. Oh, Jeff's better. He's better. <laughs> hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, uh, next song, song number nine. Next song is just for the stage of my life I've been at for a while, which is a lot of my, I got to meet so many of my heroes that a lot of times it's like, okay, who haven't I met? Like who, who's left, uh, who's still around? And one of the last ones, one of my last heroes who I got to know in the craziest way was Bill Withers. Uh, I, again, just because I'm a 70s kid, it was that moment where Stevie Wonder, Bill Withers, Joni Mitchell, Wing, you know, Paul yeah. McCartney, that's the stuff, Ringo stuff, you know, that was the stuff I was raised on. Um, and I loved Bill Withers, and he basically retired from music by the time, he sort of dropped out of it by the time I got out here. 
But I always, every year at the Grammys, I go up to Ken Ehrlich, who you, you know, you know yeah. Ken, when Ken was producing the Grammys for so many years, and I would always go, Ken, can we get, can we get, Bill with, can we get, Bill with, can we get the weekend to sing, you know, uh, Lean on Me with him or whatever. And, and Ken would humor me and he loved Bill Withers too and would write letters and he would always say, no one wants to see this old bag of bones or whatever. And then one day, this is not that many years ago, but the Eagles were playing the forum. Phil, uh, Phil, I'm so on the podcast, so promoting the podcast. Uh, uh, Ken invited me to go. I said, "Go, come with me to the Eagle show because yeah. we're supposed to go to the Forum Club and then maybe talk to the Eagles about something for some award show. And we walking in and I go, Ken, Ken, is that Bill Withers? That's Bill Withers because he's been out of the scene for a while. He goes, yeah, that's Bill Withers. I go, you got to introduce me to Bill Withers. I have to meet Bill Withers. <laughs> Because I just love. The I winners. can't imagine this David Wilde. Because I'm always with you. When I'm with you, I'm you. I'm you in this situation that you're talking about. I'm the one that's like, can we can we say hello to uh, uh, well, Kazem Sultan? But this is one. This absolutely a guy I loved and yeah. never thought I'd got. To, this would be my last chance. So the greatest thing happened that night. He goes, he introduces me. Talk to him for a few minutes. He can tell I really know his music because I really know his music. Yeah, and that impresses them when you well, do he, that. He, people like that. Yeah. If you, if you know, if you're a deep fan. But we're talking about for like four minutes, and he goes, oh, he looks at his phone. I get he got a text from his wife. He goes, David, my wife is going to be like an hour late. He goes, I hate these fucking parties. He goes, I hate industry stuff. He goes, I love the Eagles. I want to be here for the Eagles. But please do me a favor. Would you mind sitting with me for like an hour while I, until my wife gets here? So you here. ditch Ken? Ken was with us for part of but yeah, he was making the scene. All I think right. making talking to Joe Walsh's you know wife or All Irving right. Azoff trying to arrange okay. something. So I just talked to Bill Withers and asked him every question I ever wanted to know. Got in the middle of him like solving an old feud he had been in. He was the coolest guy. And how could, old was he at this point? Do you think? I don't know age wise because he was not young when he started. He was, I think, seventy. Is he still with us now? Or did no, he no, pass? he passed. It. What's funny? What's funny? What's great is that I got to meet him then, and then a couple years later at Joe Walsh's seventieth birthday party, I guess it was. Brad Paisley, who just called, yeah, took me with him as his date, and because. Even though I knew Joe, I wasn't cool enough to be at the party. and I. But I went in the party, and Bill was there, and we hung out again. I had two nights just hanging with him. He was everything I ever wanted him to be. I think he's one of the greatest singer-songwriters of all time, and he's gone. We did. We honored him like two years ago, I think it was, on the Grammys. Uh, just love him. Um, and uh, this is, I think, did I pick Lean On Me? Yeah. Lean On Me by Bill Withers, which is a song that is suitable for every emotional event in your life. And who doesn't like this song? If you don't like this song, turn this show off right now. Please. Never listen again. We are wise. We know that they're always tomorrow. Lean on me when you're not strong. And I'll be your friend. I'll help you. If I have 
this song also oh yeah he wrote everything everything he sang okay cool i mean that actually i think maybe there's one or two but yes he wrote almost everything amazing a great writer great guy i you know he was i think he had a reputation for being a little elusive and even difficult because he sort of walked away from everything yeah he was so great he i think what he was was just like kind of had the humility to sort of like I'm I'm old. I'm you know he yeah. didn't think anyone would care, but everyone cared. And like uh, Jimmy Jam, who was on our podcast, like I remember we were working on the Prince tribute when again when the pandemic hit, he was going over to Bill Withers' house to make some new music. I think Bill was about to return, and then he was gone. And uh. Uh, he was the he was one of my still one of my favorites. And I got to tell people when I ask you to put this list together. You got it back to me pretty quickly. It seemed I like I did it in it, two minutes. I mean, yeah, these these songs were you know right there. You knew. Well, don't let's not <laughs> to say. I also when I'm not getting paid to do something, I just do it. I say you have to pay for my time. I got so. you a water. No, no, I'm just saying <laughs> it would be a different list if ten you were getting later. paid. No, it would be a different list ten minutes oh, later. Okay, well, I if I was being saying. paid, I would have given it a week's thought. Uh, but you couldn't afford that. Well, of that look, I for not it. giving it any thought, these this is a great song list today. I really like this. Oh, thank you. No, actually, this great is song your best too. appearance so far. I'm, I'm a because very... I think we're getting the most uh, David uh, of all time. Well, like Christie's not here for you to flirt with and all that stuff. Flirt? <laughs> I'm not capable of flirting. <laughs> all right, I I kind of maybe know why you picked this song, but I kind of maybe don't. So I'm excited to hear. Um. My next one is Mama Said Knock You Out by LL Cool J, who was a big, you know, factor in my life because I did the Grammys, I think the first year I came in with Jon Stewart, uh, who, and by the way, I came in four days before the Grammys, last minute. I think Whoopi Goldberg had dropped out. John came in at the last minute. The writing came in at the last minute. It was also Jimmy Kimmel, who was not that famous, and Adam Carolla yeah. from The Man Show. I think maybe they had just started The Man Show, and I, that's how I met them. Uh, but the first, uh, so it was, that was the Jon Stewart years. Then there was a Queen Latifah year, Love Her. Then there was a No Host few years. But then there was a run of shows with LL Cool J, and that was just a dream come true. But it began with a very traumatic moment where I wrote an open for him for his first Grammys. It involved him doing the song, Mama Said Knock You Out, and then, because that was like his first Grammy appearance, and it referenced that. It's one of my favorite uh, rap tracks of all time. He is one of my favorite people I've ever worked with. But what happened was, that open, he came and rehearsed it. He was doing his, you know, his CBS drama. He was actually, was a little sick that week. He did his rehearsal, was great. He went home and he called me and said, David, I'm going to go to sleep early. Tell me we're locked and loaded for tomorrow. I said, we're locked and loaded. About 10 minutes after that, we got the word that Whitney Houston died. And I called him back. I said, Ella, we are unlocked and we are unloaded. <laughs> because when something that big happens, you, you've got to reference it and you've got to reference it in a big way. And if you don't, this is what I've learned about TV. And I'm not <laughs> saying I'm that good at anything, but I, I think I've learned... How do you respond to a moment? And I had to do that again with, or we had to do that again at the Grammys in a big way uh, when uh, you're in working in the forum. And yeah. I'm sorry, 
we had to respond to that in a big way when you're at Staples Center and yeah. the guy who the house that Kobe built yeah. and Kobe dies the day of the show. Yeah. Like that's happened twice in my life. Like a death has happened that means you totally have to adjust and redo your open. I've had that with other like in this weird award show world I've inhabited part of my life. There's a million ways you have to respond. Like I remember doing an Emmys where we had a the whole open was Conan on a plane and a plane crash, and then there was twenty people died in a plane crash during the day, and you have so to you can't do it. Well, you have to re-edit the film yeah. and figure out a new way to go. That sort of stuff happens. But the most traumatic was, in a way, the Whitney, uh, because Ella was a friend of hers. Mm -hmm. uh, I had just been with her, in, in, worked with her the year before, and we redid it. I think it's one of the best moments in Grammy history. It was crazy tense because. What happened was uh, uh, Ken Ehrlich ran off to get Jennifer Hudson to do a special performance. I sort of started to rework the monologue, went over it with Ken. He goes, this is great. Sent it to LL, who's unlocked and loaded and feeling sick, and it's the next day. And he reads it. He goes, this is really great. Because I remember the show opened with Springsteen, and I was trying to find a way to bridge from that song and the lyrics, the, the thoughts of that song, into this, into the Grammys. And he was leading to Bruno Mars doing an up-tempo number. So how do we emotionally yeah, take this journey? That? Wrote it. Uh, Ken and I were ha really, Ken said, it's great. Called LL. He goes, I love it. This is powerful. There's one thing missing. I said, what's that? He goes, a prayer. And I went, okay, I don't write a lot of prayers. Tell me what you're thinking. And what I actually said was, I'm not, I'm a little godless. <laughs> so why don't you write a prayer and then I will try to de secularize it to the point where we can do it. Yeah. And that's sort of what happened. Ken liked it. I liked it. The network was very concerned. The Grammys, the Academy was concerned mm -hmm. saying we don't, we're not a religious organization. Right. And rightly, they were rightly concerned. But the one thing I've learned on good and bad shows is you have to think about who's on the stage and you have to have the words be true to the person saying them. That's sort of the bottom line on everything I've ever done in TV is not that I always get it right, but when I get it wrong, that's what I've done wrong. And so I went to them. I said, just let him say it in rehearsal, dress rehearsal, which was yeah. in the morning. And the minute he said it in dress rehearsal, every single person said, that's powerful. Yeah. And if you watch that Grammys, I still get chills because it's like, they cut to people who are now gone, you know, some people, well, yeah, you, you see the people in the front row uh, and the reaction, it's really powerful. It really, and to me, it's like, I tried to make it, and this is in general with the Grammys, it's like, it's not religious, it's the church of music. It's yeah. the music community as a family. Uh, and so that's why I always think of LL, I always, and even recently, like there was some show he was writing, sorry, there was some show LL was hosting uh, at Christmas, this past year and I wasn't working on it and mm -hmm. in the middle I get a call like David will you just rewrite this thing because and I was like okay and like I you know and I, he would do anything for me and I would do anything for him and that's good yes now good thing about this story is LL Cool J he ran it by you he could have easily the show's live he could have easily just gone into some prayer that you didn't maybe know about he's the ultimate he's a professional professional hardest worker team player respectful to everyone i never saw him be rude to anyone mm -hmm. except not rude but one time his manager claudine 
and I were on at rehearsal and a security guy, occasionally security guys at venues or other people's security guys can become really rude. Mm -hmm. And this guy started yelling at his manager, Claudine, who I love mm -hmm. just like I love LL. And I sort of stood up, you know, I went, please do not talk to her like that. This is LL Cool Just manager and she will be treated with respect. And you, who the hell are you? LL sort of overhears a little of this, walks over and I th I saw the side of him that like when that guy broke into his house and he pummeled him mm. into the ground, I was like, oh boy, this guy who I love, don't ever piss him mm. off because yeah. he was, he looked like he was, he goes, like he saw that, thank God I'd stepped in and I was not likely to cause any damage. Well, uh, I won't name any names, but I saw you get that way when some security was trying to get your son and his friend moved out Oh, you it. were there for that? Oh, yeah. Okay, well, I will say that that's nice of you to say. I wasn't going to tell that story because it makes me look too good, but my son said, it was really funny, like, what impresses your kids? Because mm -hmm. my kids have grown up around a lot of yeah. stuff. Yeah, they were sitting right behind me. It was your son and, and his friend. Yes, and what happened was, it was, I believe, I'll say it was Kanye West, I think, security guard. Yeah, it was. He was being a real dick. And he, like, I think he got, like, even, like, put his hand on my son, and yeah. I, and this guy was a big guy. Really big. And I just lost my mind as a dad, and I was like, <laughs> it was get great. your hands off of my son. Uh, and my son said afterwards, he goes, I have never had more respect <laughs> for you as a man than when you jumped in in front of the six foot five guy it was, and got into a fight. It argument. was great because I'm like, oh, if if they're getting thrown out, I'm next because I'm not supposed <laughs> to be here either. But it was, uh, yeah, it was. Uh, that guy was, uh, he was just a dick. That's all I can say. He was yes. just. I'm like, come on, man. You, you re, you, but I will. LL because your kid was so polite. Your kid was like, no, no, my dad works on the show. No, and he had the right pass. It's like, of course. No, what it is is often the thing is. This was at the Grammy rehearsals. We are the show, and it's yeah. like, but occasionally there are certain. Listen, it's not like it's only Kanye's, uh, his team's only instance of over overreacting, <laughs> overreacting. Yeah. Uh, but Ella was the, is the opposite of anybody who's he's the most professional, hardworking. He's cool. He's just yeah. cool. I'm gonna, and I'm going to give you a compliment too. You work on these shows for months and weeks, you know, and like you said, you're locked and loaded. And then when something like Whitney Houston passing and you guys have to jump into action, that's really where you're really earning your money because that's where all your expertise and um, what I want to say, all your background in doing this, that really comes into play when you have to jump into action and, and fix the show. Well, thank you. And I've had, you know, it, I've had a few instances. There was one I'm very proud of. I don't want to, I shouldn't, I want to blow my horn any more than I have. All right. But there's a few instances, but it's partly because I have also done the opposite of the shows where I have not stood up for what I think is right have ended up being some of the worst things in history. Yeah. There was like an Emmys and an Oscar, the uh, Oscars where, you know, the Franco, uh, Anne Hathaway Oscars where there's stuff. I feel like I should have like put my not let James Franco on the stage. I didn't realize that was your fault. It wasn't my fault entirely. <laughs> I think James Franco deserves lion's share of the blame. Uh, but there was that, and there was an Emmys. So I've learned if you have a strong feeling, you better say it. And like there was one instance, I'll j just share it. Oh, we're running out. My wife is going to be mad that I'm talking too much. But there was one with Alicia Keys, who I was a great, also a great host. Mm -hmm. But there was one when. Kobe died and that was really there was no time we had no I would that was the day of no time to adjust and a major series of adjustments but there was a thing where like 
in her dressing room with like the most powerful people in the show. And I'm not the highest person in this pecking order. I'm not right. at all. Uh, but like there was a question of like, I think someone said, you don't have to sing. You don't have to. Like, and I had suggested she sing something. Mm -hmm. I said, because there'd already been like the pre Grammys, the, you know, earlier awards ceremony. Someone had already said some nice words. There were already being quotes about nice words. And I, my strong feeling was having had LL do the prayer, I said, Alicia Keys, we're, you're the host. This is what I always think. She's one of the greatest singers on earth. She's a very warm and empathetic person. She should sing anything she wants. So it's sort of like, and like someone had said, you don't need to sing. Because was, there was no time to figure it yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. And I said, you have to sing. <laughs> and I was like... And she kind of just wrote a song, kind of. No, no, she? no, no. What happened was, like, I said, I don't care if it's Amazing Grace. I don't... It's, it's, your, it's in your heart. Yeah. And I, it was like these things where I was being looked at by the people who were above me. Like, why are you going so strong at this? And she was like, okay. Like, and the thing is, she's a very... She has her own very strong opinions. She's a brilliant woman. But she sort of that moment said, because there was no time to think about it. Yeah. She went, okay. And then she thought, uh, boys to men are here because they were in some other number. Uh, and she had the idea of it's, it's so hard to say goodbye mm -hmm. with boys to men sort of walking out behind her. And it was powerful. It was great. And it was then we, I said, because if, if you sing, we cut to the jersey up in the rafters of in we're in staples yeah and then it being really powerful and i it's not like i could sing it it's not like i even picked the song but it's just like moments when you go no you have one of the best voices on earth use it please now and, and again when you're on the east coast you watch it at eight o'clock but it we're watching it at five o'clock so it's even less time than you think you even have to get i think prepared. the rumors were coming around during dress rehearsal mm -hmm. so we're there was no time. There was a half an hour in her dressing room, 15 minutes where we talked. And then all the changes that we made, I remember it was like broadcast news, that scene. Like me and the script person are running, running to down. the prompter, trying to get the changes in the prompter. We got, we got the changes for what we were doing in four different segments because of Kobe or whatever in... 10 seconds before the airtime. Like it was, there was no room for error. Because what happens, you guys run the whole show as, right. a, as a test. What do you call it? We dress rehearsal. Pre yeah, yeah dress. dress rehearsal. You run the, and then right when you're done, it's almost. It's meal break. Yeah, and then you do the show. Right. And we didn't have a meal break. We just ran around like crazy. And we cut, because there was a lot of jokes and material, like comedic bits that suddenly didn't feel right. No. And we, so. All those adjustments had to be made and communicated to the 250 Everyone. people working on the show. Yep. It was that was nuts. And I can't even think what the prompter person has to go through to change all the stuff. What they have to go through is me yelling, <laughs> like, "Change it! Change it! Ready? Is it ready? Is it ready?" Uh, by the way, in the pandemic era, I was when I've done shows and like you have to be in a mask. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to yell at prompter. Oh, I know. I can barely order at uh, Coffee Bean with my yeah. mask on. No, it's rough. Like, change it! Change it now! now, now. <laughs> all right, Mama said, "Knock you out." Here we go.
Yeah, what's funny is my weird relationship with hip hop is that I was in college right when the earliest, earliest hip hop was mm -hmm. hitting, and I wrote like a paper on the poetry of hip hop, like in my last weeks at Cornell or something. And then, but my favorite, the first like rap superstar solo was LL. Yes. He was my favorite. And so years later to have him be a friend is just crazy to me. The, uh, let me ask you this. Are the Grammys coming back to LA again? Do you know? I, I, I believe, I definitely, I, I believe so, but I shouldn't be the one to say. All right. I mean, we, eventually we didn't know we were going to Vegas no. until, and just to be honest, like there was no place open to us in LA for the, you know, it's like that's, and because of the pandemic, everything was being pushed back to spring. And so there was literally, there were no venues. We never there. heard of a venue that we could go into because there's, you need a certain size venue for the production and there's yeah. not many of those stages in the world. That's yeah. why the MGM Grand where we did it, in certain way, it was like great because it, it literally just had the right dimensions and the space back. And you lucked out it. that it was open. Yes, amazing. All right, last song, and then we have a playout song. But this is the last one in David's list: the story of David in song. Um, we can skip this one unless you, you know we can do. Okay, we'll do this one. Why would we skip it? Um, unless you don't have a good story. No, no. For it. Well, the story is this is like my, is this going to ruin the show if we no. hear the story and play the song? <laughs> no, it's actually maybe. One of my favorite. It's the most rockin' tune All on right. the list. Uh, I, I did grow up on the new wave and sort of punk era. That's sort of, you know, that's my high school years. You know, Elvis, Costello, huge to me. Uh, the Clash, huge to me. Uh, also where I got my politics. Like, I know nothing about politics that didn't come through Bob Dylan or The Clash or Elvis. Like, I'm, I, I, I read lyrics. I didn't read newspapers as much. So... I always loved, I always thought London Calling was their best album. London Calling, the title track, is my favorite song. And it was, as opposed to other later Grammy moments, the first time, I'd already worked on the Grammys as a writer for a couple of years with Ken, and uh, but I had never been creatively that involved in like figuring out what a song. Yeah. And that was the year, Ken had always resisted, I think, doing an in memoriam because he rightly realized that could overwhelm the show. There's so many people who die, it becomes so political. Right. But for some reason that year, there was a movement, we have to honor some, some put the an in memoriam package. And so Ken agreed and had the idea of, okay, let's do a musical number and then you run the images of the other people. Uh, um, uh, Joe Strummer died right around that time. Unlike, and Walter Miller was directing then, uh, he was like 70, whatever. Uh, Ken was executive producer. I was the, I was a kid. I am no longer the kid by a long <laughs> fucking shot. But I was the kid and I was like one, I love The Clash. And he goes, well, what, Ken, it's the first time he asked me, what would you do? And so it's like, I think that's like the moment, not in title until years later, but I sort of began to be a co-producer, you know, helping in that. And the first suggestion I ever had was for London Calling, and he goes, who should do it? And I said, well, the cool thing is Bruce Springsteen, I'm from Jersey, loving all this stuff. Bruce was signed to the same label as The Clash and loved them. I knew that. So I said, I would get Elvis cost. This is like, this is where Ken was basically saying, okay, what is your high school wet dream? Can you, <laughs> would you like to see if we can make it come true? I was just thinking that. It was 100% that. And I said, Elvis Costello, 
Bruce Springsteen. And then he fleshed out, I think, okay, well, we can get Dave Grohl to be on it. Uh, and I said, we can get little Steven then with uh, with Bruce, and, yeah. and who's kind of the punky spirit of yep. that band. And then I do remember, um, like, I think we asked Elvis who could drum, and, and, and Elvis said 100%, uh, you know, that it should be uh, Pete, his drummer, uh, uh, Pete Thomas. Yeah. Because uh, he goes, he totally can do that that type of drumming and then we needed a bass player and i do remember i was just sort of like okay maybe we should get someone like Grohl, who's from the new generation at that point and uh so i picked the guy from no doubt who uh, i will say afterwards i uh, gave gave me the biggest hug i've ever gotten he was so happy that you that, put him in with all these luminaries yes so that was the rehearsal it's one of the most interesting rehearsals i've ever watched because i'm watching in in the in the form of Bruce and Elvis, my high school titans, dream team together doing this song I love, and I will say it also. What I learned is what makes someone the boss. What makes you the all time champ in terms of enduring? Because what happened was Bruce was already on the show. Elvis was not. Bruce was doing the Rising, I think it was, or whatever else he was doing that year, and uh, and I watched the rehearsal in which Elvis totally stole the number. Like, Bruce sat back, and he let Elvis... He let him it. take... He let him have his moment. In rehearsal. Okay. And, oh, I, th and I thought, okay. oh, that means... Look how generous Bruce is just going to let Elvis <laughs> have the bigger moment. But I forgot, oh, no, that's not what a champion does. What a champion does is they wait for the show, and they vroom. They hit the home run. Right. And the thing is, no, they both... Owned it, okay. But Bruce did not. But he sit didn't back. lay back. Oh, he no. didn't lay back. He was great, <laughs> and that's and that's what I learned. That's why he's Bruce Springsteen because he's not. No, he's always going to go for it and do the best he can, and that's why he's still the greatest. And Elvis, you know, who I uh, know better than I know Bruce. It was it was a great moment. It's my favorite. It's easily always in my top two or three, and maybe emotionally my favorite Grammy performance ever. All right, and here's London Calling, the original version. Boys and girls, London calling. Now don't look to us. Phony Beatlemania is putting the dust. London calling. See, we ain't got no swing except for the rain and the crunch of things. The ice is coming, the sun's zooming in. Meltdown. See, it's so funny. As you're playing that, my head is. I. I. A. This is just my life that I feel lucky and blessed. Like, I'm looking, I'm getting texts from Jimmy Jam and Brad <laughs> bitching more about the Dodgers because we're freaking Calm out. Calm down, Brad. I'm looking at the Who coaster that you have here <laughs> and remembering I was, what was I? You know, whenever, it's actually whenever uh, Who Are You came out, I was in Eric Allidort, who I think is out here in Pasadena yet, a friend of mine. I was in his house and we were playing... London Calling, Who Are You? And I was just dreaming of maybe being able to write about the people. And the weird thing is to have gotten to work with some of these people and a few of them are friends. Uh, you know, it's, cra it's a crazy, I'm crazy lucky in that way. And still working with these people and still meeting new people. That's what Sheryl Crow in the interview, which please 
follow and listen to that episode. But I was so happy. She said, like, uh, she goes, yeah, we fought in the same trenches together. And the amazing thing is I'm not just happy that we're, like, old war buddies yeah. because I'm happy we're still in the trenches. We're still fighting this. Like, we're, we're so lucky because God knows a lot of people are gone. Like, and... I think the next couple of years are going to be brutal that way. It's going to be rough. It's going to be I rough. I look at the autographs I have on the wall and I'm just like, oh, this meatloaf and Eddie Money and Rick Ocasek. It's just like, oh boy. Oh no. It's And it's doing the in memoriams the last couple of years. Yeah. I, 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 I'm involved in that and it's rough because like I, John Prine yeah. uh, was like, there was the Grammys 2020. Yes, the early 2020, mm. and I was hanging out with him at Ken's party afterwards, talking about we were going to honor him at a Grammy salute. We were so excited. There's this picture we have of, it's me, him, I'm trying to remember who this lineup is. It's Bonnie Raitt, and it's Cindy Lauper, and I, and we're I'm so happy because I love all of them. I love Bonnie Raitt. I think and I've seen that picture. You've yeah, I've tweeted, tweeted that. that. Yeah, and that's like, and then that's when the pandemic hit, and I. You know, even not people who are young, like Adam Schlesinger, who I don't know if you, I, yeah, yeah. you're a fans of Wayne fan. I yeah, was, yeah. I worked with him. Tinted I, Windows. Is, I yeah, love Tinted Windows. It. I'm a huge fan of his. We were friendly. We're not, like I'm saying, we, were, we weren't friends. He knew. I think I freaked him out by being such a fan. Yeah. I love Fountains that of Wayne. That one was a real shock because of so young. We'll tell you the thing, like, I think about with him that's always crazy is that Valentine's Day, that's right before the pandemic, I mm -hmm. guess, you know. Well, the pandemic was probably already happening. So the question is, I don't know, maybe he got it that day. We were in a crowded club for Valentine's Day. I was there because it was free. So I was, you know, I'm a cheap Valentine's Day for Fran. <laughs> but I remember like Fran wanted to leave at a certain point, walking out right past Adam Schlesinger and like waving. Yeah. And, and then not not knowing that like, you know, he that he'd be gone and John Prine. So yes, I'm hyper aware of that. And so yeah, I can't believe I'm still there to help honor the people who I love. And also, that's like when I tweet constantly about birthdays of old rock stars, yeah. it's because I want every, in my little way, I want to make sure everybody I love knows how much I appreciate them. Like, that's partly what I was saying about my mom and all. It's like, in as a fan, not just family, I think that's a really important thing to do because like we had this episode the episode with Brad Paisley on uh, Naked Lunch, he's like, I got to, and he got to know George Jones and Buck Owens. Yeah, all and, his heroes. Oh, Andy Griffith, this amazing story about Andy Griffith on that episode. And they're amazing, but he goes, a lot of your old heroes are really, he goes, at a certain point in their lives, they have more time, and if you can let them know how important they are, that's the exact time in their lives when you, they're beginning to feel maybe not as relevant. And like I, I'm well aware of that. The podcast started. Phil and I had 30 lunches with Carl Reiner towards the end of his life, and like we had the best time. He was the greatest guy ever. But it was like we were doing it for ourselves to hear the stories. But like in a weird way, it's so great that you know we made. He definitely knew how much how loved he was. I mean, it sounds odd, but those lunches were. He probably valued those as much as you did he looked forward to that he for phil more than me i think I, but he was he, I, but there were certain moments where i'll, I'll like with the moment, i meant that carl valued them no i mean he, oh, I, think, okay. he, I think he he valued oh, he valued sitting with phil i think i think i was phil's friend who <laughs> okay. was brought along but not completely because there were moments where like i remember 
like he showed me, I was giving him a book. I think I gave him Trevor Noah's book before Trevor was a Grammy host because I love Trevor Noah's yeah. book. And he gave me a book and I went to his shelves and one of a couple of my books were on his shelves. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, that's crazy <laughs> to me. That is it's crazy. super crazy. All right. So let's promote. You got this thing called Naked Lunch. I don't want to talk about it. Phil Rosenthal with David Wilde. Phil's name's at the top and then at the bottom of the logo with David Wilde. Well, that's your opinion. <laughs> and uh, these drop once a week. What's your day that they drop? Is it Wednesday? It's Wednesday night at midnight. So it's Thursday, I think. But yeah, so you wake but, up Thursday. There it is. Yes, but they're out there. I usually am looking Wednesday night before I go to bed. and listening, To make sure it's there. Uh, listening obsessively, yes. Um, so go listen to Naked Lunch. Through Stitcher or wherever you get your everywhere, podcast. Everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. And David, you're at uh, Wild About Music on Twitter. And you'll be promoting this thing, I, I think. Your naked lunch. Oh, yes. Shamelessly. <laughs> uh, we are at Rock Solid Show, and you can go to rocksolidpodcast.com for all things about the show. So the playout song is you have a legit, like you said, you have a legit theme song, original song written by Brad Paisley. Yeah, we were a couple of years ago doing some TV special for him, working really hard on it. It came out great. And he goes, David, I really owe you. And I go, he goes, what can I do for you? And I said, you can play my funeral. I want to make sure I have good, you know, good, good, a good show, because uh, I won't be there to produce it. And he goes, "I'm in." And so I called him. Did it like in March when we were about to do the podcast. I said, and Phil was like, "Should we have a theme song?" I'm like, "Well, let me ask Brad because he's I've introduced them and they've become great friends." Yeah. And he wrote this song. I love our theme song. And he also, by the way, he also scored the podcast. Like he gave me all those interludes and stuff. Interludes. Those are all, all right. Brad. Cool. And this uh, this song should be uh, it should be iTunes like you should be able to buy this song. You well, should... I think it's on YouTube for free, so I don't think it's going right. well, to sell a lot. I'm taking it uh, the audio because I was looking for it. I'm taking it from the top of the Jimmy Jam episode. So let me let me. I'm going to turn our mics off. So David, I think this was a great your best episode. I, I, I don't judge my episodes. I wait well, for my wife to get home. This was a lot of fun. I appreciated uh, you sharing stories from your your life and uh, the songs you love. And now I'm going to turn our mics down. Say goodbye. Bye. Have a good, nice naked lunch. Let's spill the beans, chew the fat, food for thought and jokes on tap. Talking with our mouths full, having fun. Piece of cake and humble pie Serving up a slice of life Leave the dressing on the side It's naked lunch Clothing optional